I've been looking for you for five years, man. Why the hell didn't you come to me for help? I didn't need your help. You're sick. You know that, don't you? What the fuck do you call 125 murders in five years? Huh? Work in progress. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. Brad, we are still talking about comic book movies, right? That, that's our we theme are. for this June. Yeah, uh, with varying levels of quality, yes. Yes, varying levels of quality. So, you know, just as a reminder to everybody, there, there was a time period in cinematic history where comic book properties just didn't make any money. I know that's weird in 2022, uh, because it feels like the comic book films have, well, comic book movies and Tom Cruise have pretty much saved the uh, theater going experience so far this year. Uh, but we're, we're, we're picking out some of our favorites or more interesting films that came out in the past that bombed theatrically. And tonight we have a doozy. Uh, we do. <laughs> I, I had, so truth be told, I don't know if I've seen this one all the way through I know I've seen bits and pieces in the beginning, in the middle, and the end, but I don't know if I've ever sat down and watched uh, this movie all the way through. So this is my first time. Oh, okay. So it's my pick this week, and the first movie I picked for this month was Howard the Duck, which was a Marvel property. And big surprise, the second movie I picked is another Marvel property. And what's funny is this character has shown up in a few films and a few television shows but we're going to go back to the first one and talk about 1989's The Punisher. Uh, Brad, I, I got to start here. What do you think about this character? Are you familiar with it? Is it something that you've read on an ongoing basis? Have you collect any of the Punisher comics? No, I'm, I'm not the biggest Punisher fan. <clears throat> I guess my first real introduction to The Punisher would have been the Spider-Man cartoon. Okay, um, He would pop up in the cartoon every once in a while. That led me to look at... Um, his kind of origins with Frank castle and all about revenge and all this stuff. Um, so I'm not super familiar with Punisher to be honest with you. It's just not a character that has ever really called out to me. Um, and now in 2022, like a guy who kind of takes vengeance into his own hands and, uh, his symbol has been co-opted by some people that you don't want to hang out with. But, um, yeah, I, I'm just not um, a big Punisher guy um, unless he's kind of in the Spider-Man world. Okay. Uh, I have collected a lot of Punisher comics, uh, even when they, you know, Marvel at one point had a Marvel Knight uh, series. And I, mm -hmm. I think one of the Punisher films was kind of billed that way is like, hey, here's a Marvel Knight film. So I've always found him to be a really fascinating character because he's gone from true anti-hero adventure comic to something really gritty and dark. Um, and, and he's been all over the place. A little bit of background about this character. 
he is his first appearance was in Amazing Spider-Man 129, and that was back way back in 1974. So the character was created by Jerry Conway and artist uh, John Romita Sr. and Ross Andre. The, the character at its core is depicted as an Italian-American vigilante who employs murder, kidnapping, extortion, coercion, threats of violence, and torture in his campaign against crime. So the whole setup is that his family witnessed a mob-style hit and as a result of that being witnesses, the mob wipes out the family. So Frank Castle, um, who is an ex-cop, just kind of takes the law into his own hands and just starts tearing down everybody, right? And he started as sort of a villain within the Amazing Spider-Man run, but then really gained a lot of popularity uh, in the 80s and 90s. And at the height of his popularity, this is what's crazy to me for this character. So he was featured at one point in four monthly publications. So the Punisher, the Punisher War Zone, the Punisher War Journal, and the Punisher Armory, which was just like a collection of here's all the tools at the Punisher, and th- and this wasn't even on top of like the Punisher specials and everything they put out there. So I oh sorry uh, the the, the yeah. thing I find the most fascinating about the Punisher is he's one of the most simply designed Marvel char- not just Marvel characters but comic book characters period yeah right yep black shirt with the skull on it black pants. Yeah. And in the traditional one, he has sort of white boots, white gloves. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, it's, yeah. it's a black and white character. And, uh, I, I mean, it, it basically, it's, it's such a fascinating character that he survived from the seventies all the way to now because he's been, you know, he's had his own Netflix series now. Um, he's been in three films, <laughs> which we'll probably talk about those, uh, in total. We're going to concentrate most of our discussion on 1989's version but he's just a weird character because for, you know, a a company Marvel that is kind of built on superheroes and mutants and everything else, here comes this anti-hero and they really turned him into sort of an action adventure star at the height uh, of the 80s when action adventure movies, especially R-rated movies are making a lot of money. He doesn't have superpowers, right? He's just a man. He's just a man, but you know, he has this military experience martial arts experience, tactician, all that other stuff. But yeah, he's, he's, he's a guy that gets a hold of a lot of guns and then, uh, takes out a lot of people. Uh, and, and I gotta be honest, like my, my favorite, how do I say this? The best use of the Punisher I've always found is always when they pair him up or against daredevil. So, Oh yeah. That's why you like him so much. I do. I I mean, I'm daredevil is one of my favorites, but I've, I've collected primarily Punisher and Punisher war journal, uh, and, and, you know, I, I think Chuck Dixon did some amazing stories in that era as well. Uh, and, and that was my first introduction to it, but I've, I've always been a fan of this character and I've probably have been more of a fan of his history and how Hollywood uses him. Because even when we talk about these films, I, it's crazy. I don't know if Hollywood knows exactly what to do with him. Uh, well, in, in Disney would have no idea what to do with him. If, if, you know, the eighties and the nineties and the two thousands, if, if Neville Dean and Taylor don't know what to do with uh, Punisher, <laughs> Disney has no idea. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. So we're, we're going to talk about 1989's the Punisher. We'll, we'll probably touch on the other films uh, in the TV show too, but Brad, let's go back in the time machine and talk about 1989. 
this was an interesting year for superhero films and the Punisher while not a superhero film comes from the Marvel side and, and for everybody, keep in mind there, there was a pretty significant comic book movie that came out that year too, but I don't want to steal your thunder. So let's, let's talk about what was going on when the Punisher was released. Yeah, it's, it's got a weird release, right? So Punisher is released originally October 5th, 1989 That's internationally. It does not get a domestic uh, theatrical release. Um, so it doesn't come out in the States. You can't see Punisher 1989 <laughs> until 1991 on VHS. Yeah, um, I did see. So the budget is reportedly around $9 million. Again, not really any sort of big um, box office take, but I, I saw that, you know, uh, through the VHS releases, they say, you know, about $30 million um, of revenue. It seemed to do um, really well on the home media market, but it, 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 it kind of crashed and burned. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like what we would consider straight to video um, for the, for the U S market. Yeah. In the U S. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so April 25th, 1991 is the day Americans can see the Punisher from 1989 again in 1991. Um, you were hinting that 1989 also saw the release of Tim Burton's the Batman or Batman. Sorry. Yeah. Um, which is the first movie I ever saw in the theater. Um, so that's one of the reasons why this, this film is on a podcast called not a bomb is because it was the production and everything. They kind of moved it from releasing um, domestically just to go to straight to straight to video. Uh, but also it did not review quite well. Um, it sits at a 24% with the critics wow. and a 33% with the audience. Um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And our, our favorite Christian websites did not review this movie. Um, I was going to do the uh, Warzone uh, review, but I didn't want to uh, confuse everyone that we were doing Warzone. But April of 1991, you could see such films as The Marrying Man. Are you familiar with The Marrying Man? That would have been Kim Basinger and um, uh, Alec Baldwin. Oh, shit. You're right. You're right. That's a, Is that a Disney movie? Yeah, romantic comedy. Yeah, okay. Wow. Um, What about Out for Justice? Obviously, you know that one. Yeah, Steven Seagal Uh, in the pool scene with the cue ball in the towel. Heck yeah. Yeah, eight ball corner pocket. Um, (laughs) uh, Drop Dead Fred, which is probably going to be... Probably on the show at some point. Uh, Mortal Thoughts, uh, A Kiss Before Dying, Oscar, and Toy Soldiers are films that you could have seen April of 1991. Again, if, if you went to the theater, that this yes. one you had to rent on VHS. This one, yeah, you had to rent. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, again, if you're American, Punisher in 1989, you couldn't see until 1991. So, you know, there you go. Okay. Uh, this one has an interesting, I don't know, slate of people working behind the camera. Uh, let, let's start with the director, Mark Goldblatt. So, He's only done two films, Dead Heat, 1988, which we'll, we will talk about because that's a box office bomb. And the same the, year, right? No, 88. That was 88. That was 88. And yep. The Punisher has a release date of 1989. And he, he got the gig for The Punisher because at the time that he was filming Dead Heat, uh, they were approaching him because Dead Heat had some buzz around it and, and said, hey, we got this other property we're working with Marvel on. Do you want to do it? He accepts it. Uh, but that's that's kind of the last 
theatrical film he works on. Now, Mark is really not known for his talents as a director. In fact, most of his filmography is as an editor. Yeah. Now, listen to the films that Mark has edited. Okay, here we go. Piranha, 1978. Humanoids from the Deep, 1980. So Roger Corman guy, right? Yep. The Howling, 1981. Also in 1981, Enter the Ninja. Yes. We got to stop here and plug the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, which we did an episode over there on Enter the Ninja. We're both fans. And Uh, we did Revenge as well. We did Revenge as well. Um, Halloween 2, 1981. He was busy in 1981. Here, here you go. The Terminator, 1984. Rambo, First Blood, Part 2, 1985. Commando, 1985. Uh, Nightbreed, the Clive Barker film, 1990. Predator 2, which we've talked about on this film, uh, on the, on the podcast, 1990. Terminator 2, Judgment Day, 91. The Last Boy Scout, 91. Super Mario Brothers, 93, True Lies, 94, Showgirls, 95, Starship Troopers, 97, Armageddon, 1998, Hollow Man, Bad Boys 2, Exorcist the Beginning, X-Men The Last Stand, Rise of Planet of the Apes, Chappie, and the most recent Death Wish with Bruce Willis from 2018. That's just a sample of the That's stuff that he's worked on from an editor standpoint. Some of those are, I mean, those are big 80s films, Commando. Terminator. Yeah, you're talking about some of the most D2. significant I mean, D2s, yeah. 80s exactly. action films, right? Was he the last boy? Did he do the last Boy Scout too? Yep, 91. He edited yep. that. Uh, and it and it seems like once he hooks up with a director, they tend to use him over and over again. So obviously, so I'm guessing he's like easy to work with and a nice guy or something as well. You know? Yeah, I'm I'm sure he is. So uh, the screenplay is done by um, Boaz Yakin. I'm assuming that's how you say it. So he's pretty interesting too. He did the Punisher, obviously. The year after that, he did the screenplay for the Rookie uh, with Clint Eastwood and Charlie Sheen. It's a fun little yeah action film. Uh, Fresh in 1994, he wrote the screenplay, but that's where his directorial debut was as well because he's a he's a director. He wrote the screenplay for From Dust Till Dawn Two, Texas Blood Money. Not Dirt. not a great movie, Troy. Not a great <laughs> yeah, movie. Not a great movie. Yeah. Well, how about this one? Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights, the the sequel to Dirty Dancing. You would scream. I, I that. wouldn't know. I, I haven't seen that one. I thought this was so. Did you ever see Safe with Jason Statham from twenty twelve? Yes, of course. Okay, yeah. Wrote and directed that. It's a great film. He also did the screenplay. <laughs> what Troy? Safe. I mean, it's a, yeah, okay. it's a great film. Great it is a great okay. Jason Statham okay. film. It's a fun yes. okay. action. film. I'm not saying it set the world on fire. It's just when you talk to Jason Statham films, safe is a great film. Okay. Okay. Uh, now you see me from 2013 max in 2015, which he also directed and he did it's this about a dog, right? Yeah. He did Isn't the dog the one. Yeah. Dog? Yep. And a Netflix film, uh, Western, the harder they fall from 2021. So he wrote the screenplay to that. He directed Remember the Titans in 2000. That's that's one of your favorites, right? Yeah. Yep. I really like that movie. Okay. Uh, and then we have cinematography done by Ian Baker, who did Roxanne, The Russia House, Fierce Creatures, Queen of the Damned. Editor on this film was not Mark. It was actually Tim Wellburn. Uh, here's some interesting ones. So Tim worked on The Road Warrior from 1981. Fortress in 1992, which stars your buddy, Christopher Lambert. Mm-hmm. Did, you, did you ever see Fortress? I did. Yep. Okay. Yep. 
Wasn't it the of early nineties, like Troy. Fortress and No Escape, uh, like prison films? Yeah, futuristic prison films were like a big deal. Judgment, well, like Con-, Con Air has, you know, all those Face Off yeah. has all those like futuristic prison. Yep, yep. Judgment Night ninety three and Blown Away ninety four, which is it's another good decent yeah. action film. <laughs> if your if your prison didn't have magnetic boots, then you weren't a real prison. That's right. Uh, executive consultant on the Punisher, Stan Lee which we'll, we'll get to Stanley's thoughts on the film. I thought this was interesting. The assistant to Mr. Lundgren was Susan Fleming. She worked on the Punisher dark angel in 1990, which I believe was uh, when it was released in the U S it was, I come in peace. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, yeah, it's, is that the one where he shoots the, like the disc out of his arm? Yeah. Like the CDs, the alien. Yeah. The CD, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just keeps saying, I come in peace. peace yep. Yeah, and uh, so it's crazy. These assistants sometimes you see them like follow an actor, director, or whatever forever. I, I guess Susan Fleming, she only has three credits, and uh, they are for Dolph Lundgren, but she dropped off after 1991 cover up. She's not his assistant anymore. I don't know what mm. happened. Bad falling out. Let's talk about the cast: Dolph Lundgren, Frank Castle, hundred acting credits. There's, I mean. There's the whole mythos of how Dolph got into acting, um, drummer, karate expert, what MIT graduate. Yeah. He's like super smart. Yeah. Apparently like chemical engineer. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. He, I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. When you look at his early filmography, it's a lot of fun. So Rocky four, 1985 and a view to a kill in 1985. All right. So where does Ivan Drago rank for you in, cinema villains is he on the the mount rushmore i would have to think so i mean it i'd hear the argument yeah rocky three with mr t is pretty fantastic but uh, let me put it to you this way in terms of 80s cinema villains if we're just talking about that decade he would be on the mount rushmore of 80s cinema villains okay i mean what's your thought on that no i i i I mean when he's when he says Apollo Creed, when he tells Rocky, if he dies, he dies. I mean, seven year old Brad was crushed. <laughs> so okay, yeah. um, he's in a, he's in a film that I think is one of your favorites, Masters of the Universe from nineteen eighty seven. Yes, uh, Red Scorpion in eighty eight, which is sort of a Russian I don't know Rambo knockoff. Yeah, yeah, that's how I describe it. Uh, Punisher in eighty nine. I come in peace. AKA Dark Angel 1990, Cover Up 1991. I love this film, Showdown in Little Tokyo mm-hmm. 1991 with Brandon Lee. Brandon Lee, yeah. Yep. And then starts working with uh, Jean Claude Van Damme in Universal Soldier as the heavy in that one. So that's a good run, right? That's a great Between run. 85 and 92, he's doing some really cool action movies. He is. He's, I, I think he's. I don't think we talk enough about Dolph Lundgren in the eighties because when you look at that, especially going into the nineties, he was, he was doing a lot of neat stuff. Um, but I, I just, I love his presence. I love his physicality and, uh, we'll talk about his performance in the Punisher. But when I look at these films, I, I actually kind of go, he's, he's not that bad of an actor either, but it's weird though. Cause he has like a, he has like, he's in the zeitgeist for 10 years and then he's basically gone. Yeah. 95 you're like he's gone he's just doing straight to video which there's actually some gems in that straight to video stuff so uh there's he did some diehard ripoff command performance i think where he's a drummer um 
foiling terrace or whatever. It's, it's actually pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Check it out. We get Louis Gossett Jr. As Hell his, yeah. As his partner, Jake Berkowitz. So uh, Mr. Gossett was nominated for seven primetime Emmy Awards, three Golden Globes, and one Academy Award. He has 216 acting credits. He won an Oscar. So he was nominated, but he won for best uh, supporting actor for the film An Officer and a Gentleman in 1982. Now he this won is a lot for a lot for that yeah. Home globe. Yeah. Yep. Now this is what uh, Mr. Gossett was doing in the eighties and in about the time the Punisher was out jaws, 3d 1983 enemy mine, 1985 with Dennis Quaid, which, which is an awesome movie. A great film. Iron Eagle, 1986, the top gun rip ripoff, which is still a lot of fun. Kicks ass. Firewalker 1986 with Chuck Norris himself, which is that one of the good ones? Is that a good one? <laughs> Define like, how are you using the term good? Good. Well, like it's a good film or good no, it's because, a good Chuck Norris movie. Cause uh, there's only like two of those. Yeah. It's fun. Okay. It's fun. I like it. Um, he did the principal in 1987. Remember in the late eighties when we were doing all these films about the school system and all the teenagers and stuff were unruly. So it's like, well, let's make movies where people carry around baseball bats and like yeah. bludgeon Jim the kids. Belushi, right? Yeah. Bludgeon the kids oh, hey. into submission. So I'm going to hit you with a baseball bat. Yeah. Oh, that's a terrible Jim Belushi, but whatever. Uh, Iron Eagle two, the sequel, it only took them two years to pump out a sequel to Iron Eagle. <laughs> Um, Punisher in 89 and then he works with Dolph Lundgren again because they, they actually got along really well uh, on this and, and did another film called Cover Up in 1991 the only other two people I'll mention wait 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 oh yeah yeah he is in one of I think one of the most underrated sports movies of all time Blue Chips which stars Nick Nolte it's a basketball college basketball movie about taking money um Shaquille O'Neal is in it. Anthony Penny Hardaway is in it. Um, it's got a bunch of cameos by real coaches. It's a, uh, it's really a good movie. Um, it kind of predicted a lot of what was going to happen with college basketball and taking money and all this stuff. So all yeah, right. if we're talking movie. sports films, I'm going to see your blue chips and raise mm-hmm. you one Dickstown. Oh, okay. Yes, you're right. You're right. Okay. Yeah. He's in that, in that, that, we got to talk about that movie sometime. I love that film. Is love that uh, James Woods? Yeah. Michael Ritchie. Is that the guy's name who directed that? <sighs> I, I don't remember the director. I just, okay. I yeah, remember seeing it in the theater. So good. So good. Um, two other people we'll talk about in front of the camera. Um, Jerome Crabbe as uh, Crabbe. Gianna Franco. I only look every time I see this guy, I always think of two films, the living daylights in 1987. Yep. He plays that general. And The Fugitive in 1993 as Dr. Charles Nichols. So, spoiler, if you haven't seen The Fugitive, he's the bad guy. He's the bad guy, yep. Yeah, yeah. He's the one that changed all the tests to get... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Kim Iori as Lady Tanaka. Lots of television work. And the only film I can think of outside of this one that I recognized was The Grudge 2 in, in 2006. Ooh, okay. Yep. I believe, I believe one of her earliest... Uh, credits is she was a dancer on the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. So makes sense. She was using a lot of uh, 80s television. Yep. So 
Well, that was 78, but yeah, that, that, that helped her. Okay. Yeah. A uh, couple of things about the movie. There's, we're not spending a lot of time in the production, but I, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and put this out there. Cause we got to get it out of the way. Christopher Lambert was the original choice for the role of Frank castle, but an ankle I was going to be Frank castle. Yes. He was going to be the punisher, but that hurts my ankle. Yep. I twisted my ankle. Troy twisted his ankle and it, uh, forced him to withdraw from the film. Another odd choice. <laughs> 1989 Steven Seagal was interested in being the Punisher. So he was in talks. Yeah, that would have been different. Yeah. Uh, Could there you was, imagine Frank Castle with a ponytail and being no, a little bit pudgy? I cannot. The The other one, which made sense to me, um, just because he was in Streets of Fire and it would fit, was Michael Perret. But that's an urban legend. It's been confirmed he was never in talks to it. I heard that and I couldn't find anything to substantiate that or anything. I was like, so I urban legend. Okay. N- never was even in consideration. And I thought this was interesting. So production took place in Sydney. And so you're talking late eighties and Nicole Kidman was initially cast in the role. I assume it was for the uh, female detective to Lewis Gossett jr. Uh, Sam, Sam. Yeah. But yeah. she, I, I think at this point went to go work on dead com or something else, but she had potential to be in here. Um, a couple of other things, Dolph Lundgren because of his physicality and his, his sort of expertise in martial arts, he did most of his own stunts and actually they hired a couple of sort of um, we'll call it professional martial artists. And when you see, and you're watching the film towards the back end, these guys are throwing, you know, kicks and punches. They're really hitting each other. They trained as stuntmen, but when they got down to filming it, they they were actually going at it, you know, full contact. So that's why some of those hits look real. Because yeah, they were because they are real. Um, and so after the film's done, Mark shows it to Stanley because he's the executive consultant, and Stanley found the film to be very violent, very violent. He didn't like it. He still gave it his blessing, but uh, Mark Goldblatt defends the film saying he's a violent character. There's no way around it. So they, they leaned into that aspect of it pretty much. I mean, he is, he's not wrong. Yep. So, I mean, that's everybody. Well, and and there's one thing missing out of the, like the iconography of the Punisher and that's the skull. Cause apparently he didn't wear it because I don't know. They didn't have the rights to the actual symbol. Is that right? Or something? No, like that? I, I think it, I think it was a choice. So the okay. skull shows up on the knives. Yes. So yeah. it's one of those where I, I think the director screenwriter, everything else is going for something that is way more gritty. And, and you got to keep in mind, you're talking 89 here when they're making this thing, R rated action films are doing really well at the box office, mm-hmm. not comic book films because Batman at this point, I mean, it's going to happen and it's going to blow up, but take Batman aside, R-rated action films are kind of where it was at and you could you can make some money, right? Especially in yeah. the home video market. So I don't think they looked at it and said, hey, if, if you, you know, see the original comic book character of the Punisher, they weren't trying to take that and bring it to the screen. So they would hide the symbol like on the hilt of the knife or something of that nature, but they're trying okay. to make something a bit more gritty um, and realistic from that sense. If you happen to run across, I think umbrella put out a blu-ray of this. So the blu-ray print of the film 
the theatrical version, it looks okay. Quite honestly, between the DVD that's circulating out there and that Blu-ray, the Blu-ray is just maybe a step up. It, it looks okay. But the cool thing about the Blu-ray is it comes with two different work prints that are in standard definition. So you can actually see about an extra 15, 17 minutes. And most of it takes place right in the front of the film, meaning the work prints start in a different place with Frank Castle's family being alive. Oh, um, okay. So it goes more. It starts there. Yeah. You get 15 minutes plus of backstory and you get to see, you know, Frank interacting with his family, him working with his partner. They do like a drug bust. Um, where the theatrical movie starts today is about maybe 15, 20 minutes into the work print. So they basically just lop that off and, and you start right with um, that mobster coming out of the uh, the courthouse. Yeah, I think I prefer that. Uh, I agree. I mean, I, th- I think we talked a little bit about this when we when we were talking about the thing. So um, Campbell, who wrote the short story, you know, who goes there, the original version of that was frozen hell, but he even went on record and said he didn't like his first version of it because he just had a problem with where the story started. So more or less, he kind of cuts off chapter three. (laughs) He starts at chapter three and says, this is where the story goes. And it, it really makes it a better short story. So they kind of did the same principle here of just saying, instead of doing that whole background setup, et cetera, let's go ahead and just get right to it. And so the things that you see in the flashback are really just a couple of minutes or a minute. Yeah. That's, that was taken from the first 15 minutes that they chopped off, which is plenty, which is, uh, that's all I really need. And and I appreciate this not really being an origin story. Yeah. And, and just to level set, cause I, I didn't know that. I mean, you, you had seen the other versions of the Punisher before this one. I had thought, you had seen this early on too. So I mean, this, I've seen bits and pieces of this, but I've just never watched it all the way through. So um, what was the first Punisher film you saw? Was it the Thomas Jane? 2004 one? Thomas Jane. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then Warzone. Warzone. Yep. Yep. Do you watch yeah, any I mean, Netflix stuff? I didn't really get into it. I tried. I like Bertho a lot, but I just never really could get into it. Those first few episodes I felt were really slow. And you know how it is, man. Like, there's so much on. If something doesn't grab me in the first two or three episodes, like, I'm not going to invest time when I can be watching a hundred other things that are better. It's just hard. There's just too much. No, I get that. I, I, I would have, I've only watched the Bernthal version in the Daredevil series. I haven't started mm-hmm. the Punisher series, the standalone. I think there's two seasons of that. Yeah. But I've, I've seen him in the Daredevil series. Uh, which he was comes in, quite he comes good. in season two, right? Uh, is it season two or three? But yeah, yeah maybe. It's yeah, whatever. One of those yeah. two. Yeah, and he's 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 quite good. But so my viewing chronology of this would have been eighty nine, then Thomas Jane two thousand four, then Warzone. So I have watched this character grow chronologically. Chronologically, whereas okay. you're coming to this late in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, and to be honest. And we'll get into the other ones. Like, I think this is a character that translates really well to the movie screen. Yeah. Like it's it's not an overly complicated premise. A guy, his family, murdered. He's out for revenge. That is that is like I can tell you the plot of a movie in a sentence on an elevator, and it's easy to understand. And I get it. So do you? That's interesting. You say that. I agree with you. 
this is a great character for a film series. But I guess my question is, is it a great character character for the MCU? The Disney MCU? Yeah. <laughs> no, because it's too, it's, it's the Deadpool problem. It's these like, this has to be rooted in, in violence and they're not going to do that. They're not going to lean into the violence of this character and his, you know, his anti-hero ism. They're not going to do it. You don't, you so don't why, think they could do it. I mean, apparently daredevil's retaining its R rating, right? The third one. Yeah, and, I mean, I had to, I have to put in a pin every time, uh, not every time, but yeah. you know, to, to watch Disney plus now, but I, I don't think, I think that's cause that's a legacy thing and they have the rights. So they might as well, but I don't know if I see them saying, well, we're going to have this character who's obsessed with guns, which in 2022, I don't know if that plays very well um, and is super violent. But, you know, I I would like to see it because I think there have been, and this sounds weird, but like there's times when people feel like they need a hero to protect and take revenge on um, mobsters or whatever that they feel like. They aren't getting theirs. That and vigilante good, uh, yeah. sentiment, I mean, right? That's why Batman. That's, that's why Batman works, right? But this guy isn't a billionaire, so he's a little bit more relatable. Um, you know, he probably has an A two flag up in his yard, but you know, whatever. <laughs> so, I it, it's a tricky character because of its its violence, and it would have to be R. Um, and it know, makes total sense. Uh, let, let's be honest here. It makes total sense why this character probably gets associated with the wrong people in the world because you have groups out there that look at this Punisher Frank Castle thing and go, if the system is failing me, then I'm going to get behind this type of character and champion it when in fact the, the system isn't necessarily failing the general public. It's just it it's not lining up with your kookiness. Yeah. And so yeah. you start relating with the character who goes outside the law, but at the end of the day, this is just a guy who kind of breaks mentally because his family's murdered, and then he just goes to exact revenge. Yeah, and I think they play up in in the in the series, you know, his PTSD and things like that. Um, so, I mean, the character can be way more nuanced. It doesn't have to be revenge or anything like that. I mean, it could be a definitely be a tale of how we don't take care of veterans when they come back from yeah. war and things like that. Like, there's a million things you could do with this character. Um, I just don't. I think the violence is a part of the Punisher. His name is the Punisher. Right. Like you, you, you don't get away from that. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. I am curious uh, on your thoughts for this one. So I, I picked it just full disclosure. I picked it because in high school um, and even college when this thing had come out. So it, it had home video probably when I was in college. I had heard about this film for a while because I was a Punisher fan and when it finally hit VHS, couldn't wait to get my hands on it and watch it. And for me, wasn't disappointed because it scratched that itch of 80s action films, even though U.S. market didn't get to see it to the 90s. But but even that interesting period of transitioning from the 80s to 90s in terms of action films, mm-hmm. this kind of fit right in there for the most part. So I know nostalgia and my love of this character. And when I say love of this character, my fascination with it, I'm not out there going, man, we need a Punisher. That's like killing 125 people that just, no, no, no. I'm fascinated because that vigilanteism 
that kind of rears its head from a society standpoint always fascinates me. Like how Death Wish kind of caught on in the 70s, how mm-hmm. popular this character was in the 80s and and even what more kind of like dirty hair you know dirty hairy kind yeah of goes all that stuff yeah. I, I think this type of property for me is always really fascinating because it becomes a little bit of a reflection of what's going on in society and even some of the sentimentality of how people are feeling about their society or government and, and stuff like that I'm, I'm always fascinated by that and how a corporation responds to that in terms of popularity and what they do with it um, and I, I can't say this enough. I, I think the comics in the early nineties, um, especially, you know, uh, Todd Fox was doing a few issues, but primarily Chuck Dixon's writing is just really good for what he was doing with Marvel, especially on, um, the, uh, the Punisher war zone. There's a war journal. Yeah. I, I can't remember which one Chuck was. I, I think it was, uh, now let's talk movies, not comics. Okay. All yep. right. So yeah, get, get to your thoughts on it. I'm curious what you thought of this. <laughs> yeah. I, I text you and, and said, Hey, I didn't know I was going to be watching the rat King movie with rat King <laughs> for people who don't know is a teenage mutant Ninja turtle character who lives in the sewers and talks with rats. Uh, you know, the, the Punisher essentially travels via the sewer system in this movie. Um, yeah, I, it took me a minute or two to get used to the aesthetic of this movie. Um, and I think the first bit of this movie is better than the second half. I think it gets way too bogged down with kids and the Yakuza and the mob. Like, I think they overcomplicated this movie a little bit by introducing the Yakuza when you just need him versus the mob. But then again, I like Yakuza. I like people uh, having swords. It's and, ninjas, man. Yeah, I know. It's the Yakuza again, with so, ninjas. Yeah. So, yeah. So they bring in ninjas and uh, Punisher V ninjas is is not a bad thing. Um, Lundgren is, is, is good in this movie. He looks uh, very uh, sleepy and tired and beat up. Because he intentionally didn't sleep. To yeah, capture that like look. you could yeah. definitely tell he is he is doing some method acting in this movie. Yeah, um, and really getting into this character, um, you know, Lou Gossett Jr. is great to see on screen. I wish there was more of him. Um, and I, I I love when houses get blown up and they blow up a house not once but they blow the house up twice like it blows up so and then it blows up again and i'm like oh hell yeah can I'm i in this movie. can i ask you something when you when you watch a film from this era and you see pyrotechnics or explosions do you just get giddy like when yes they blow the crap out of stuff they love blowing stuff up i mean i mean i miss someone, that i, I mean someone I, I don't took know time out and got paid to build a house for the only reason to blow the son of a bitch up and they blow it up and then they blow it up again and cars blow. I mean, they really blow up. I mean, I don't know what it is. I, maybe there's something psychologically unstable with me, but I see CGI explosions. I'm like, eh, I don't get excited, but it's not too exciting. But man, when something blows up and you go, wow, look at the pyrotechnics. You can feel the heat. You're like, oh, so cool. Yeah. You know, and we have like incompetent police in this movie. Like, (laughs) Frank Castle is literally like all over the place. They're like, who could the Punisher be? Like, uh, I think we know who it is, but like, well, no, Frank Castle is dead. And I'm like, Did you find the body or whatever? But anyway, 
Um, I, I really liked this movie for its sort of 80, 80s-ness <laughs> and um, the action and, you know, I am not, a, it's weird, right? I am not a real big gun guy. I love movies that have a bunch of guns in it. And yeah. this one, you know, he's more knife than I would like, but there are lots of guns, um, you know, and there's the your cliche where he's literally down the hallway from two guys with machine guns and they fire and he's just standing behind a wooden door and none of the bullets hit him. And I'm like, yes, this is what I signed up for. I want the Punisher to be, you know, invincible. Um, I, I really, the one problem I have with this movie is the guy called shakes, right? Shakespeare or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's like this rhyming sort of bum who gives the, the Punisher. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I, I don't know if, if he would really care if, if shakes got killed, but anyway, um, no, man, I, I, I liked it. I think it gets a little bogged down with some of the story. Um, but you know, it's got a nice body counts. Um, and, and Lundgren is really good as Frank Castle. I, this is one of the, this is a weird thing, right? There's been four different Frank Castles yeah. portrayed on, and I think all of them bring something different that I've seen. They're all and, good. And they're all good. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't think, I don't know. And, and Lundgren's is just different. It's, it's weird. His is way more tired. I mean, his is just really tired and you can tell. He's like just exhausted from all this. I mean, he kills like 125, 125 like mobsters. And you can tell like that is taking a toll on him that he is always out for revenge and he never stops and he never really sleeps. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's just the best movie I've ever seen. No, but it's a cool action film. And, you know, it, 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 it does something really well too, where it's like, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Um, you know, it does drag a little bit in the second act, but then the third act kind of comes around and, and pays everything off. So you, you yeah, really man. think it has parts where it drags? Because I one of the things, and I was going to ask you about this, I noticed. Um, I think the kid stuff is just too much. I'm like, I, I don't really care about these shithole kids. Like, But I, I feel like just when it goes down that path, I, I don't know if somebody behind the scenes has a stopwatch and is like, well, hey, we're at eight minutes of talking. Let's blow something up. And then because it feels like uh, I've seen some criticism that this is just wall to wall action. Like it's, it's mind numbing action wall to wall. And even watching it this time, I see where that criticism comes through where it's like, Hey, we're going to open with this sequence. You get a little bit of plot. Then you go to the next action sequence and there is action galore through this whole thing. I guess it would depend on, do you think the action sequences in the middle don't stand up compared to the beginning or the end or cause I, I, I would love to take a stopwatch and go, I, I really think in my head it's about the eight or nine minute mark and they go, Nope, too much talking. Let's shoot something. Yeah. I, I don't know. If, if someone says a movie has too much action, I'm like, we can't be friends. Cause that's, that's an impossible yeah, I don't thing. Get it. My do. wife will do that all the time. She's like, there's too much action. And I'm, I just, I get numb to it. And I understand that if you're not invested in the story, but I also understand I'm a guy and, and I, I like to see, you know, feet to the face and punching and shooting. It's just, it's a guy thing. 
Yeah, but I, you know, there's this thing where they're going to unite the families and all this stuff, and then the Yakuza comes in, and then of course they kidnap kids, and I'm just like, I I, I appreciate them trying to make this into a bigger thing, but I think Frank Castle just needs to go up against the mob and call it a day. I I'll say this: the Punisher as a character who's this just unstoppable killing machine. What I always find difficult about that type of character is you need a villain that matches um, that. I don't know. Frank Castle. <laughs> Let's get the Punisher is a psychotic version of Batman, right? Yeah, let's get into the ethos of, of Frank Castle here. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. So the guy loses his family and just starts killing every bad guy out there. Right. Or every guy he thinks he's bad. So it's basically Charles Bronson's character from death wish, Paul Kersey, but turned up to 11. Throw in judge dread a little bit in there too. Yeah. All of it. Judge Julie execution. Right. And I, I think that makes a very interesting anti-hero and you can go a few different ways with that character. And Marvel in general has certainly done some interesting stuff with him over the years. And I, I, I've already said this. I really think, especially when daredevil is involved. So you get Frank Castle's psychotic break mixed with Matt Murdoch's Catholic guilt. I think that brings a lot of interesting stories to the table and they've done that in the comic series and it's really good. Um, but for that character on its own, it's a anti-hero who's just murdering people. You need somebody who is more evil or more ferocious. And that's always going to be your problem with this character, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and you're right. You're right about the big bad thing. I, I didn't think about that until you said it. Like the mob boss at the end isn't a formidable foe. Like, he isn't. It needed to be some of the, like there needed to be a bigger, badder Yakuza so he could fight or do so like there had to be somebody that was a formidable foe for him to fight with. Cause them rolling around on the ground. Wasn't that exciting? No, but I, I think they did get there with lady Tanaka as a character. So I, I really think she's a great villain because if, if your hero is going to be Frank castle, you need somebody who's really evil and her intro is fantastic. And I, I, I mean, she just, you don't know who she is, but she shows up in like ninja scuba gear, right? Yeah. Yep. And you go, well, that's a female, obviously. And everybody's following her, but don't know who she is. Then in her introduction with the, with the mob bosses and one guy comes up to kind of give her crap, she kind of puts him on the ground rather quickly. So that kind of reminded me of Oren Ishii yes. from Kill Bill. Yeah. Like her intro, like, you know, cotton mouth and yeah. Yeah, and she's she's got this mute daughter that she adopted that obviously is an assassin. But what I really love about is is she comes in and she doesn't bargain. She gives a demand and you know, she drops the mic, right? And after that happens, then you have the mob kind of fighting, are we going to go to this meeting? We're not going to go to this meeting. And um they tell this story about her killing her brother, like makes him a meal. And then murders him to prove her loyalty to the Yakuza. Yeah. And I, I love that aspect of it to where they're basically telling you, if you think Frank Castle is a bad guy because he murdered like 125 mob people because they murdered his family, 
here's somebody who is really messed up. Yeah, she killed her brother. Killed her brother. Just because. Just, yeah, yeah to, to prove her loyalty and has no problem selling kids, killing kids, um, kidnapping them, turning them into mute assassins and all this other stuff. I actually think that's one of the highlights of the film is you, you've got Kim Miori does a fantastic job in terms of the main baddie. I, I think without her, this problem there would be a problem in in the film of you wouldn't have somebody who would who would kind of one up Frank Castle's psychotic nature. Yeah, I agree with that. But the problem is they kill her in five seconds when he dives and throws a knife at her. There's no there's no showdown with her and Frank Castle. I, I don't think I don't think you can have a showdown between those two simply because of of Dolph Lundgren and Frank Castle. I mean, he's just an intimidating. Yeah. I mean, you saw how it played out with the uh, the final fight between him and the the mute girl. I mean, at some point, he's just holding her up against the wall, and she's squirming. <laughs> and the only the only thing she has are these little gadgets and knives that keep coming out. That you know he's trying, but he he you know gets rid of her. Yeah. So I I really like even at the end, she's like, "Hey, uh, mob boss guy, you got to kill yourself, and then I'll let your son live." But he knows the son living, she's still going to sell him or keep him and. That's his. Pr- it's it's so messed up, and I like that aspect of it. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's you know when he puts a gun in his mouth, I'm like, oh man, like, yeah, it gets he, gonna- crazy. Yeah, but no, I I uh, I think <laughs> I think Mark Goldplatt decided to make Ninja Four the Punisher. Um, if you were, and it makes sense that he edited Enter the Ninja. If you're watching Enter the Ninja, Revenge of the Ninja, Ninja Three: The Domination. And then the Punisher, in some weird way, it all would fit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Shogashugi needs to be in here, but yeah, yeah, I get it. Um, and the other thing I don't think this movie gets enough credit for is um, that it does stick to its 80s R-rated action versus getting too deep in terms of the psychological drama portion of it. But the interesting thing is that... Um, Boaz and Mark, you know, the, screen, the, the, the guy who wrote the screenplay and also the director, they did leave some of that psychotic nature of the character right under the surface, and it gives the film an edge. And so between the content of the screenplay and Dolph Lundgren's performance, there's some darkness there uh, that, again, I, I find kind of fascinating. Like, they're tapping into it, but they're they're just not exploring it, but it's there, right? Yeah, I needed more squibs, to be honest with you. You need more squibs? Be 80, and we'll, we'll, if it's an 80s action film, give me more squibs. I need some squibs. I need some blood to be... I, when people get shot up, I need to see some blood splatter. I, yeah. Not enough in this movie. Really? I thought... I thought. <laughs> God, this sounds crazy. Two guys going, oh, I need more blood yeah. in this film. Well, I mean... If it's an eighties movie, I need, I need some squibs. I thought, I thought there were enough there. I'm, I may have to go back and just pay attention to that. Uh, well, let, let's talk about, um, let's talk about Dolph Lundgren for a minute. I mean, you've already mentioned it. He re- gives a really good performance here. The other thing I like outside of his performance is how they use the makeup and lighting effects to accentuate his skull. So even though he's not wearing a skull in yeah. his shirt, they try to do some things where his skull stands out on his face to kind of give this kind of eerie. Yeah. He's like, eyes are kind of blacked out a little bit, you know, yeah. and they accentuate the bags under his eyes for sure. There's some, 
some mascara going on there for sure or dirt like, or whatever, yeah, whatever is all over yeah. he, uh, he yeah. the dude is disgusting through the whole thing like he hasn't bathed in five years well and he lives with rats so he lives with rats. yeah he's he looks sleep deprived grimy the dude looks way unstable at every scene he's in like he's gonna snap at any and i love that and i i think dolph lundgren really gives a good performance in this thing. Man, and he drives a motorcycle in a sewer yes um now you you hinted on this the 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 one drawback to the film is I think it's weird they try to make the Punisher more likable because he cares about the kids, um, but I, I mean, don't think it it overshadows the fact that he's off balance. He just killed 125 people over five years, and I like the fact that even though they show they have this kid plot in there where he's gonna go save the kids, they always keep in front of you, the fact that he's a murderer. Yeah. You could definitely tell guys were sitting around saying, well, we need to make him somewhat relatable. How do we make this character relatable? Well, he lost his kids. Okay. So he lost his kids. Therefore he's going to have a soft spot for kids. Yeah. If we put kids in this movie, therefore we can show he's somewhat relatable. It's easy to connect the dots, but to me, it's like, eh, I, I don't, I don't know if I want to be relatable to this guy. Yeah, I think that's the reason why like I'm attracted to this character in this movie is because he and I aren't the same. I, I'm I'm kind of with you. It it almost feels like if they had done this ten years earlier, like late seventies versus late eighties, that kid thing wouldn't have been in there, and they would have really gone a little bit harder with the psychosis part of Frank Castle. Yeah, yeah, like really played up the the antihero aspect. Damn, a seventies version of this movie would have been. Oh, that would have been awesome. Yeah. Um, and I would just, I still would have wanted Dolph Lundgren to be <laughs> in this, uh, seventies version. I, here's, here's the other thing. There's a sequence when he has like duck lips with that big machine gun shooting up the casino, blowing yeah. it up. And yeah. he still looks cool. Well, I mean, anytime you're holding a massive gun and you're shooting slot machines, I mean, it just looks cool. It does. And, uh, and that's another thing, right? Like, so we can't make this guy an outright murderer. Well, so he, no, like of innocent people, right? Yeah. Like there has to be some sort of connection to the mob. So he comes down and there's like this stingy sort of nightclub casino, quasi strip club. I, it's <laughs> I don't know what that is. Club but, with muscle. Like, I, I don't yeah, know. People showing yeah. off their muscles and women. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, someone's having a good Tuesday night. Yep. Um, and he doesn't kill anybody in that. You know, he has an opportunity. He just destroys all the stuff. I think he, but there was probably a body count. I think he kills some of the bad guys. Like maybe, yeah, but like he's not killing innocent people. No, he's just shooting. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes Um, sense. I I think it helps from his performance standpoint that he looks superhuman. When you see Dolph Lundgren, you know, just up against anybody anybody, you're like, oh my God. Yeah. And then you get these shots uh, where the camera's going through the sewer and it comes up on him, like doing some Buddhist meditation, butt naked. And you, you see like the back of him and everything. You're like, my goodness, that guy's just all muscle. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know I was going to get butt in this movie, but yeah, I'm sure Jose loves it just for that. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Jose. Um. And then the other performance, I mean, you, you you talked about this too, Lou Gossett Jr. Man, talk, he really classes up the place with his acting. It's really good stuff. And that sequence when he confronts Frank in the jail cell is really good. It is actually, 
I I noticed that scene and I'm like, this this scene is too good for this. Like, there is no reason why this scene is in this movie because it's almost like, is he going for an Oscar in this movie? Because like he's really going for it. Yeah, and Dolph Lundgren, I feel for the most part goes toe to toe with him in terms of. I don't know his mannerisms and even the the small exchange he has with them, which just kind of sets Lou Gossett Jr. off even more. To me, that is the highlight of the film. That that little sequence is so good. But I, I agree with you. It's like, what is this doing in here? Yeah, exactly. It's exactly. so good. Um, like a van full of cocaine just went into the harbor, <laughs> and now we have this. So, uh, it, it's awesome. Um, let's let's talk about the action. So I I do think it's wall to wall action. I, I think you get five to eight minutes of dialogue before something, something blows up or somebody shoots something. It's pure eighties action cinema. I, I got to say something, man, the, the stunt work in this thing, it's pretty solid. There, there are a couple of sequences in there that as many times I've watched this, I still go, Ooh, it, that guy's gotta be dead. The, the first one is um, when the Punisher is in the fun house and he's riding that motorcycle. One of the ninjas like throws a chain and catches the motorcycle and it stops and he goes flying off of that motorcycle on the second floor into the first floor. Yeah. Uh, that just looked painful. And then my favorite action sequence is he's driving the bus full of kids and they the Yakuza have a roadblock, right? And some guy, they're all lined up shooting at the bus and some guys on the hood of a car and the bus runs into the hood of the car, which jettisons the guy through the bus's windshield into the bus so then he picks himself up to go now to tackle Dolph Lundgren and Dolph, he just pulls him and throws him out of the bus and they run him over or whatever. I love that sequence. It's, it's, it's inventive. It looks painful. It's all practical. And then you also in that same bus sequence, get a, a fun, um, I don't know what you call it. Like a manic, he's hanging on the side of the bus yeah, and he finally gets thrown off and then the car next to it runs over <laughs> and I know it's a mannequin, but it doesn't look like a mannequin. It looks like they actually ran over a guy. Um, so the editing in here is really good, but uh, there's some Jackie Chan style stunt work in here, which kind of surprises me. And um, the martial arts sequence at the end is at the end. Yeah, it's yeah. really good, too. Um, and the, the sword, com- there's some good sword play. And, yeah. you know, yeah, the red room stuff is good. There's even like a it's more in the mansion earlier, but like the room for the mirrors and stuff is pretty cool. There's some really cool sequences of action in this movie. Yeah. It's, it surprises me. It starts out almost like a slasher film. Uh, yeah. Like he's out stalking and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I don't know. Each of the sequences, the, the Harbor sequence, when all the ninjas show up and they introduce that comic book style where, you know, I don't know, spiky balls are going through the air or knives and you get them twirling almost like, you know, something out of a comic book panel. I like very, that each very inner the ninja, right? It, yeah, it is. I love that each act, action sequence seems to be filmed differently with a different style. Um, and it's not the same thing. I mean, this is a guy who walks into a room and just shoots things, right? But they do something different with each action sequence that I think makes it entertaining. I mean, he uses a crossbow on a guy but the crossbow has a rope on it. So then he zip lines down while shooting a gun at the same time. It's fantastic. It's badass. Yeah. I, I just, I love everything about this thing. I love the fact that he uses up a gun and just throws it away and then gets to the next gun. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that all the guns are as grimy as he is. I mean, he's got mud and stuff on him. His motorcycle looks like it hasn't seen a car wash in 10 years. Um, yeah. I mean, if that, if the knife, if the knife jabs don't kill you, the tetanus will. Yeah. <laughs> 
That's <laughs> true. Uh, man, it's just it's a unique film. I, I it, it's not it's not deep. I mean, no, it could no. be given the subject matter, but it's and not. It's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's not. So, and you're not getting those '80s like one-liners or anything like that. There's no cheesiness to this movie. It's pretty grimy and gritty, and it, it like it pairs really well with something like like term or predator two. Like yes. if I could watch this and predator two, like back to back, I'm like, Oh, that was an awesome four hours of action movies. Yeah. It's, it's weird how it's said. I mean, the punisher I've always felt as a weird character in the Marvel staple. Um, and if you were to look at the entire, let, you know, let's say that this part of the Marvel universe of films, this one definitely stands out from them. I, I think all the punisher movies do. Um, but this one in Warzone. I, I really think they embrace that, um, I don't know, fun, chaotic side of the Punisher where it's like, let's just, let's introduce as much chaos and, and heroic bloodshed and, and just destruction as possible. I think, yeah. I think I, I have a preference over this one just because of all the practical effects, because as, as obviously you get into modern filmmaking, it's just cheaper to do the CGI stuff. Yeah. When you get CGI blood and stuff, that's where I'm like, ah, God, I missed the, I missed the practical stuff, but yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, what else? I mean, I'm, I'm glad you had a fun time with it. Yeah, it, I, 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 it's sad because this one is a little bit difficult to get a hold of. Like, it's not streaming anywhere. It's not on any service. I had to, like, pull out my phone and find where I had this catalog because I have only had this on DVD and I don't have my DVDs up anymore. So I had to, like, find the bin that it's in <laughs> and get it out. It was like, oh, man, is this even going to work? And of course, you know, it, it still holds up, but it's just like, I, I wish there's a better way to see this movie because I do think, especially as compared to now, this is like, you're not going to get a superhero movie like this anymore. Like they just, it's just not, you're just not. Um, yeah. And it, it's a fun sort of viewing experience on that alone. And I don't have any sort of nostalgia for this movie. Um, I barely remembered anything. Like I saw shakes and I was like, okay, this is weird. I mean, he, <laughs> he gets shakes to come down an alley by having a bottle of liquor on the back of a remote control car and shakes, you know, follows chase follows it. So, I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. And, and, he, and he did give him the remote control car on top of the bottle. Yeah. I mean, that would have been, I mean, it was a cool little truck too. Yeah. Um, no, man, I, I just, if you have the means to be able to watch this, I definitely think it's something to at, at least, you know, go down the road and see if it's something you enjoy. Um, and, you know, if someone said, you know what, I, I didn't really enjoy it that much. It was this, it was that I, I could kind of see that, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed this thing from full runtime. I mean, there was a little in the middle where I was a little bit bored, but, Again, I think it all pays off, you know, and that's kind of what I want in movies is like, I want a good setup. Give me some stuff in the middle, but then make it pay off at the end. And, and this one definitely does. So I agree with you hundred percent. I, if, if anybody does want to see this, I think the DVD is still circulating mm -hmm. and yeah, it, you can get it on Amazon or eBay and stuff like that, but it's, you know, for eight or nine bucks, but and it's, that's, and it's that's worth a it. more effort. Yeah. It, it's actually not a bad print. Now, if you have an all region player, or if you're in, you know, region B territory, umbrella put out a fantastic Blu-ray edition. Like I said, the picture quality 
is okay. It's a step up from the DVD. But the great thing about that Blu-ray is you get an extra two work prints. You get an interview with the director, interview with Dolph, um, reversible cover art, which is really cool. Uh, but, and, and it goes for like, I don't know. I, I think last time I saw it on eBay was like 18, 19 bucks. So in okay. deep discount, I think has it on sale every once in a while. So it's, it's readily available. The only trick is if you're in the U S or North America, you need an all region player cause it is region B locked, but I'm waiting desperately. And I don't know who owns the U S distribution rights for this. I'm assuming when everything reverted back to Disney, they got this as well for U S distribution. I don't know, but somebody needs to like get this thing, clean it up and and do a proper release. I'm, I'm hoping if they ever relaunched the Punisher TV show on Disney plus, like this is soon to follow. Yeah. So, uh, the Punisher 1989 on Amazon is 1691 frequently bought together for 4498. You can get the Punisher Dark Angel and Showdown in Little Tokyo for under $45. Hop on that. <laughs> Dude, that that is my goodness. You know, I wish that's we an af- that's an afternoon right there. Yeah, if you need a late Father's Day present, that's what you go out and get. Yeah, that's- don't sleep on Dark Angel. Oh god, Dark Angel. Yeah, I come in pieces. And that's a special edition. Uh-huh. Like Scream Factory or or Shout Factory should get a hold of this thing and do a special. Okay, edition. we're doing I come in peace. Okay. At some point in time. I like it. That's 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 a fun film. Yes, it is. Yes. Um, yeah, I don't know. Is, is it time for the question? I mean, yeah, it's, yeah okay. let's do the question. Yeah. So, Brad, 1989's The Punisher. <laughs> slash 1991. Slash 1991. Uh, no, is it a bomb? It's not a bomb. I, I kind of miss movies like this. Period. Yeah. Hard stop. And uh, I think watching this, you kind of forget that Dolph Lundgren was a good actor. That's what I took away from the most that in Lou Gossett Jr. should be held in much higher regard, but Dolph is like good in this movie. He's really good. I agree. Um, I'm with you. This is, this is definitely not a bomb. I think it's an underrated action gem from the eighties, early nineties, you know, depending on what date you're going to use. <laughs> uh, and, and here, here's the thing. If you like the Canon Ninja f- series or those films, you're, you're going to love this thing. Um, it, it has, you know, the ninja tropes and everything else, but it's just a, it's a good eighties, nineties action film. And and you said it, I think it is a highlight from Dolph Lundgren's filmography. He's really good in it. I mean, let's face it. He's, he's not gonna be an Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. He's not gonna be at that level. But what I've always appreciated about him is he knows where his strength lies in acting and he's good at using his physique to intimidate those around him in his performance when it's called for. And I, I think his skills are really put to good use in this movie. Uh, and it, it's hard to say, cause I like all the Punisher films. We'll, we'll talk about that for a minute, but for this has always been my favorite Punisher film and Dolph Lundgren's always been my favorite version of the Punisher because I think that unstable, I haven't slept in a year. Um, that look, it it nails that character. Like it's unhinged. And the other films, you know, and the other performances do a good job of it. But there's something about how Dolph Lundgren pulls it off, and it it might just be that scene between him and Lou Gossett Jr. in the jail cell that does it for me. But every time I think about Frank Castle as a character, 
I always think about that uh, that interaction between those two characters and go, that's my favorite Frank Castle Punisher performance. And I think it hinges on that jail scene or that exchange. Yeah, it is the standout for sure. Yeah. So did you get to watch the other Punisher movies? I, I, I did. I went ahead and uh, because of today was a federal holiday and most financial institutions were closed today, Troy. I, I went down the Punisher rabbit hole. Oh, boy. It did the 2004 Okay. Um, and then I watched uh, Punisher War Zone the ne- by Neville Teen and Taylor. I will say the 2004 is probably my least favorite. I agree um, with that. Yeah. God, Travolta is just eating up everything in that movie. He is so over the top. Thomas Jane is so minimal in that movie. It's a that one is the biggest disappointment for me going back. And it is way too much on the backstory and origin stuff. Um, I didn't need that. And, um, but it, it does have some, some, some nice action in it as well, but it's my least favorite. You know, what's now, funny is oh. when you watch the work print and then you watch that 2004 version, the 2004 version lines up exactly lines up. to the work print. I Be- wonder if that's probably not by accident, right? They probably, I, I don't know. Uh, it's it's just weird to me because when I watched it, I'm I'm with you. The 2004 one, I like it. I like Thomas Jane's Punisher, but what I found interesting is I like where they start the 1989 story. You're right in it, right, and you get what happened in in sort of the flashbacks. This well, one, this, that, go ahead. Oh, go as ahead. I say, this one you get him undercover. You get the death of the family. You get the the proper origin story of this character. And you even get the, like the origin story of the shirt. Like I don't, I don't care. Yeah. 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 Um, but I, I really feel like that, that movie would have been to me as good as the 89. If somebody had, had made the same decision they did in 89 and said, let's start the story here, not here. Yes. So <laughs> 2008 Punisher war zone. Yeah. And a little, little bit of background. So out of these three films, the Thomas Jane one from 2004 kind of made money. Yeah. Kind of, um, wasn't a box office hit, but it was enough for the studio to go. We're doing the Punisher two, And Thomas Jane was signed on. In fact, I think Thomas Jane actually has a short out there, 10 minute short doing laundry or something. Um, that's a lot of fun, but, the studio was backing Punisher two and they were going to continue the franchise, but they couldn't get the screenplay right. They went through a bunch of different directors and finally Thomas Jane due to creative differences is like, look, you guys can't get this together. I'm out. And then the decision was made to recast the Punisher and end up doing a reboot. So that's how we get this, this new Punisher. Yeah. Warzone. It's kind of like a, is it like a sequel reboot sort of deal? Right. Yeah, so, I I, th- I think they were thinking it was going to be that, but um, it it just kind of it it stands on its own, right? Yeah, and, and I think Punisher two they wanted Jigsaw in it, yes, um, and so they did Jigsaw in this one. This one is basically. So I thought Neville Teen and Taylor directed this movie. Did they not? No. Um, so what had happened was. So Punisher. Oh, they got to take. Did they get it taken away? I I don't remember all the details. I I know Punisher had a budget of like, and we're talking the 2004, had a budget of like 33 million. It made about 54, 55. So studios like, hey, we got something here, right? 
So then they go through a bunch of different directors and they had a Punisher 2 screenplay. But after they went through all of these rewrites, et cetera, the only thing that really was retained from that Punisher 2 screenplay was the Jigsaw character and the sequence of how he became Jigsaw. So falling into the bottles and everything else. Yeah. That's the only, and then even the original screenwriter took his name off of it, goes, well, it's not, it's not mine anymore. The only thing that kept in there was this. And yeah, he wasn't going to fight for that. But after kind of, I don't know, handing off, um, you know, script writing duties and everything else, they basically end up settling on um, Lexi Alexander. And then even at some point during post-production, there was, I don't know if it was uh, at one point they go, oh, we're going to make this PG-13. Mm-hmm. Lexi Alexander's like, no, you're not. And they I don't kinda, know how you would make this movie PG-13. I don't know. They they went back and forth. And then finally, Marvel, Lionsgate, Lexi all came together and said, yes, it's going to be an R. Uh, and she she had to fight as a director to get her vision up there. And if you look at interviews, she's like, I didn't, I didn't get everything, but I did get to tell the story I wanted to. And what's on screen is, is what she wanted. But yeah, screenwriting goes to Nick Santora, Art Markham and Matt Holloway for, for war zone. And, and I gotta be honest with you. There's, there's a lot of great articles out there um, defending war zone, even though it just got obliterated by critics and, and even audiences at the time of its release. And, and Warzone was pretty darn divisive when it came out. Oh, I mean, it's got a $35 million budget. It makes $10 million. Yeah. Um, it, it is the one that is leaning into the violence so much. Like, yeah, it's, it is a violent, violent movie. It is a horror action movie for all intent and purpose almost. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was relentless. The dialogue is a bit not great. It's yeah. it's a little dialogue challenged, but I, I think it's it kind of is a throwback to like the 80s. And I, I really dig Warzone a lot. I think coming out of this, it was like, oh, 2008's Warzone and 89 are by far the two best representations on the cinematic side. The 2004 is a bit, I don't know, I just don't like it much at all. Warzone in in the original eighty nine, I feel are are great. Uh, I I like them all. I mean, I'm with you. I, I now my grading is probably a little bit different. I go eighty nine, Warzone, and then the Thomas Jane Punisher. And the only reason, if if I have to pick, is I think you said it. All all the interpretations of Frank Castle and the Punisher, I like them all. Um, they're fantastic. The only problem I have with Warzone. It's not a problem. I, there are a couple of moments I laugh out loud. It it has a dark comedic streak to it. And I think the reason why I like 89 versus um, the Warzone uh, version from 2008, it comes down to the villain. So Lady Tanaka I, I f- is ruthless. I think she she's a great match for the Punisher. This whole Looney Ben Jim and Billy, a.k.a. Jigsaw, they're super over the top, Dominic West and Doug Hutchinson, but I never felt like they were a match for the Punisher the way that I thought the Yakuza and Lady Tanaka was. Yeah, I. so it's hard for me. Like Anything with Dominic West, I'm like automatically thinking about The Wire. Yeah. And so it, it always like kind of boosts up his sort of, intensity for me so like 
his McNutty, like it's just, I, I just, I can't detach that from him. So every time I see him, there's like, you know, you bring in baggage from seeing it from other stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I just, no, and, you're, and you're it, not wrong. I just like the re- like, it's so ridiculous. It's it, so it is ridiculous. super ridiculous. And if you embrace it, you have a lot of fun. And I do, yeah. I, I really like this film. I, it's so much fun to watch and I find it more darkly comedic than anything. And I, I think that's intentional. Um, but yeah, I just, I have a preference over the 89 because I think it hits, uh, the villains better. Um, I think Dolph Lundgren is actually better than Ray Stevenson, even though Ray Stevenson's so Ray good. In this. Is good. He's, He's good. so good in this. Um, I would have loved to have seen him do another film. Um, but yeah, I just, it, man, it, it's bonkers. That whole parkour, they really lean heavy into parkour. Even Looney Ben Jim starts like doing martial arts parkour at the end uh, against the Punisher. But I will never get tired of watching somebody parkouring above the roof and then a rocket launcher hit them and just explode them in midair. That That is one of the funny scenes. And then the other scene <laughs> that just makes me laugh all the time is when uh, they've got one of the mobsters or whatnot uh, sitting in the uh, cop's wife's house. And the one cop is going to call it in and arrest him. And, then, you know, Frank Castle just takes his, the shotgun and blows, blows his face away. And he's like, what are you doing? I, it just, it, it almost feels like a, the t- most twisted, darkest Abbott and Costello routine you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Ray Stevenson for being an RRR, by the way. Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah I think my, I would do, it, it's interesting too. Like all three of those movies are quite different. And they yeah. all kind of work on their, I mean, that middle one isn't my, isn't the best, but there are some things I like about it, you know, and, and war zone and 89 are pretty different and they all sort of work as a different sort of set of films. It's, it's weird that like this character can work in such a like different films. Um, but I would do war zone just because of how ridiculous it is in 89 and then 2004. Travolta's just not good in that 2004 film. Yeah, he's he's over time. I mean, Thomas Jane is the highlight of it. Uh, the Russian fight sequence is fun. Mm-hmm. I like the Henry Hex sequence. I mean, I, I watched that in Dolby Atmos, and uh, you hear those cars rev that engine. It's fantastic, man. <laughs> it's it's a good sequence. I like it. Um, I, hey, we have a little special surprise. You want to hear about it? Yeah, because because I wasn't there. Okay. <laughs> So when Brad and I decided, I told Brad, I'm like, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick the Punisher. We're going to talk about it. We knew we were going to talk about the other films, but I also thought it would be interesting to go back and maybe talk with somebody who worked on the Marvel comic series in the early nineties. And I actually happened to know somebody. So Todd Fox, he is a comic book artist. I've known him for a little bit. When you talk about one of the nicest guys ever, um, Todd Fox is going to be in that list. He is so much fun to just sit down and talk with. I can talk with him for hours. We've known each other for a little while. And um, he has been a full-time broadcaster, full-time comic book artist. He's worked um, at Image, Eclipse Enterprises, Now Comics, Shooting Star Comics, and Marvel. And he's worked very closely with writers like Chuck Dixon. So in the early 90s, it was about 92, 93, he had worked on The Punisher in The Punisher War Journal. So Todd and I got together 
and we chatted it up and I went ahead and hit the record. And so we got to, to just talk with Todd, um, and hear about his influences, how he kind of got started in it, what it's like to work at Marvel and kind of the process of making a comic book and some of the influences that even seeped in to the Punisher comics. And then the other thing that I also wanted to kind of highlight is, um, Todd is doing some independent work right now. And a while ago he had created, um, and, and sort of was on the ground floor of this character called aim Geronimo and, uh, the postmodern pioneers. It was an independent comic that he worked on and he's still working on it. It's a lot of fun. Um, go check it out, go buy that graphic novel. But, uh, I thought I'd share this little conversation that Todd and I have, and uh, just talk about comics in general, and spend a little bit time on the Punisher from the '90s. So, how's that sound, Brad? Awesome. All right, well, here you go. Here's here's Todd Fox. I have the distinct honor and privilege to talk to a very good friend of mine, uh, Mr. Todd Fox. Um, Todd, how are, how are you doing today, man? It's It's been a while since great, you and I sat down and talked for a little bit. It's been a few years, actually. Yeah, it's uh, good to hear you. Good to see you. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so you for having me. No, I've, I've been looking forward to this all week since um, you and I kind of connected, and uh, we're just really using this as, a, as an excuse to catch up, but... The reason why I reached out to you is this week um, for for the Not a Bomb podcast, we're we're talking about a film that has a character that you have worked with before. So for for those not in the know, which uh, if you're a comic book fan, you got to know who Todd Fox is. Todd is a comic book artist. Um, now I'm gonna I'm gonna run through this, and you tell me if I missed anything. But you've okay. drawn for Image. Eclipse Enterprises, Marvel, uh, was it Now Comics? Was was that the now one? Now Comics, correct. Okay, yes, and uh, Shooting Star Comics, I think we just kind of talked about that a little bit. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, yes, that was the publisher of AIM Geronimo, my my creator-owned character. Yeah. Yes, and we're going to talk about AIM because I, I, we're going to, that's one of my favorite things you've done um, as an artist, but the, the reason why I reached out to you is this week we're talking about 1989's The Punisher, and it was in okay. the early 90s, you were working with Chuck Dixon at Marvel, and I think you were doing two series. Correct me if I'm wrong. It was um, The Punisher, and then was it uh, Punisher War Journal? You had done an issue or two for that one as well? I did one issue of The Punisher. I think that was 93. Uh, one issue of The Punisher, and then I did three issues of uh, Punisher War Journal, 48, 49, and 51. So awesome. It was a three-part story that they interrupted for the 50th anniversary issue. They bumped it for something else and then continued the third part on issue 51. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I just thought it'd be interesting because uh, this this is, an I find, an interesting character within the Marvel staple. But even before we talk about the Punisher, I kind of want to talk about you. Um, you are one of my one of my favorite artists. I've, I've always, I mean, we're friends, but I've always loved your artwork. Uh, and I love the independent stuff that you've done as well. But I've, I'm just always curious, how did you get started in comic books? Was, now you have a degree, um, was it in graphic arts? 
uh, commercial art from the University of Evansville. Okay. And then, uh, but I had a minor in broadcasting, and I've actually probably done a little bit more with the broadcasting. <clears throat> pardon me, than I have with the, with the commercial art. It was, it's kind of funny. The commercial art degree that I got. Uh, was kind of obsolete almost as soon as I got it because the following year they they started you know switching everything to digital and computer graphics and things. Yeah, so it, was a, it was a learning curve all over again. But I had sort of gotten into broadcasting. I, I you know I made my living as a broadcaster for several years. But I'd, I but comics was always was and is my first love. And so I was just one of those kids who bought comics and most kids grow out of it, but I never did. And I started, you know, drawing comics or drawing with uh, my big thing. My big discovery was using, I don't know if you happen to remember those ballpoint pins, those big pins, and they would have four colors on them. Oh yeah. You could, you yeah. could flick the thing. In. Anyway, and I just, one of my big discoveries was to take one of those, you know, multicolored, thicker ballpoint pens and then you know they would have different colors so you could draw different characters and you know uh with with different colors things like that but i just i was just one of those kids that always always drew and uh just always loved comics and it never that love never really never really left and then uh you know most people who who stick with it they they start doing their own comics whether it's on the kitchen table or, or whatever. But at one point I started going to conventions and was meeting some professionals who liked my, liked my work and said, Hey, do you want to do this? One of those was both first one that I met was really Bo Smith, who is the creator of Winona Earp. You may recall. Okay. And he had, you know, she had her own series on, yeah. uh, which, which became that sci-fi series. And, uh, he got me in touch with, uh, he introduced me to Tim Truman. And so the first comic that I did was, uh, some Bola Duke stories within the pages of scout war shaman. Oh, cool. So I did some of that. And at that time, uh, Bo was of, affiliated with and, and friends with Tim Truman. Tim Truman was friends with Chuck Dixon. They were doing the comics that I was the most interested in because I was a guy who grew up like most people, Marvel and DC, but by the, by that time, which would be the early eighties, early to mid eighties, the independent movement started really coming in, coming into, uh, into four. And, uh, I was really, really caught up in some of that. My taste started moving more toward adventure material. Uh, you know, none, I still, you know, still have that love for the superhero material, but my, my taste started running more toward adventure or, or a little more down to earth, a little less superheroic stuff, but, uh, I don't, I don't like, I feel the need to qualify because I still love, love my superhero stuff, I guess. But, uh, so Anyway, meeting those guys, and they were uh, Tim Truman and uh, Bo Smith and Chuck Dixon. They were asking me, "Would you like to work on this or that project?" And so that uh, matter of fact, actually, my very first comic, Scout War Shaman Thirteen, um, was uh, sort of a. <laughs> uh, it, it was interesting the way it came about. There was a storyline in Scout War Shaman that had to do had there was a sidebar character, a supporting character based on Bo Smith called Bola Duke. And, uh, it was, I, I put together a few pages of just as, just as a fan and sent those to Bo saying, Hey, cause Bo was a cowboy. He, at that time in the mid eighties, there was all these ninja movies you may recall. Oh yeah. Them, you I, know, Canon yeah. group. You know, you up on all that. <laughs> so I just did a few pages where this Bola Duke character, Bo Smith as this Bola Duke character, uh, who was a cowboy ish character. He was fighting ninjas. And so I sent that off to Bo Smith, Bo Smith sent that off to Tim Truman. And he said, Hey, can you expand this for me? And that, that eventually became 
uh, issue 13 of Scout War Shaman with uh, with this big, uh, great cover that's always that, that Tim Truman. And I, so I did the pencils for it and Tim Truman did the inks for it. And it's just uh, uh, that's the, my first comic. It's almost like you can't get better than that, because I mean, one of my great he- comic heroes that is Tim Truman was doing, you know, I was, he was, he basically, you know, gave me a large part of his own personal creator own project to, uh, to, to help me, you know, to let me, to let me work on it. It was just really, it's really been quite a thrill, you know, and Bo Smith was writing it and, you know, but this was, you know, this was years before Bo Smith was, well, I know an ERP, Bo Smith, uh, but, uh, yeah, so that was my start. And then, uh, at that time, Tim Truman, was also in uh, in a creative partnership with Chuck Dixon, and they had uh, they had a, a creative studio that was called Four Winds Publishing, that they would package comics. And I think Air, you may recall Airboy. Mm-hmm. Chuck Dixon was doing Airboy. Chuck and Truman were both doing Airboy for Eclipse Comics, and they kind of had a packaging deal with Eclipse Comics. And so um, uh, they were doing some really some really interesting stuff. And through Chuck or through Tim and Chuck, I met, I'm sorry, through Tim and Bo, I met Chuck all up, all up at uh, some Chicago conventions in the late eighties. That's where I, that's where I was going to conventions and meeting these guys and establishing some contact networking, I guess. And uh, that's where I met them. And that led to me actually working first with uh, first with Bo and, and, and Truman, and then later with Chuck on, uh, on some other projects. We started out on some projects that ultimately didn't see the light of day, but then Chuck, as he was working for uh, now comics, mm-hmm. you may recall out of Chicago. That's right. Uh, right. We were doing, we did um, racer X. Yes. Uh, because they had a speed racer comic, but they also did a racer X comic. So Chuck and I did some racer X comics. And then we did one that we created called alias before the, before the Marvel Brian Bendis alias we did uh, it was a hitman comic and that comic by the way is currently being reprinted by uh it there's a they've got a new uh, uh alias black and white it's currently being uh republished uh repackaged by antarctic comics and i think issue as we record this issue five just came out this week uh of that of that of that yeah that, that just started back up this year right because i i remember yes. seeing some posts about it yeah yeah so i think i don't know how far they're going uh, I don't know how, how much they're going to reprint, uh, uh, but there, I think there were like uh, 10 or 12 issues of that in the 80s or the early 90s. But issue five, I think, just came out as we speak today or this week. So it's it's or, an amazing story to have somebody who's just a, a, a fan of comics, who's drawing it, go to the convention, start networking and sort of get introduced to it. Outside of folks like Tim, I mean, what other kind of artists were your main influences? Um, um, well, you know, there, there's a, it was all, it was a lot of the Marvel and DC guys, of course. I mean, the first guy that I remember really liking, that I was really thinking, okay, now I, you know, I like this guy. It was Sal Buscema. Some guys don't, some guys don't uh, like Sal Buscema, but he was doing Captain America in the mid seventies. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that's where I started noticing, okay, now I like these comics. I'm starting to maybe try to figure out why I like these. There was something about the Sal Buscema stuff that I was really liking. But of course, like everybody in the world, when I discovered Neil Adams, it's like, oh my gosh, what is this stuff? And, you know, some of those, some of that Batman stuff. Um, I remember buying, 
in Indianapolis, Indiana. I remember uh, buying in a three pack. Those you know how you used to get those comics in the three packs. There was yeah. a, there was a three pack that had uh, Superboy and the Legion. It was the well, not it was the first issue where the Legion were the were the were on the title, and it was a Cockrum thing. And I thought, man, what is this? <laughs> and uh, and this is all pre X Men, of course. And then then there was a, there was an issue of um, Shazam, which at the time I like, oh really? Okay, which was CC Beckart returning to Captain Marvel after you know 20 mm-hmm. years or something like that i didn't appreciate that at the time i had less than i had you know it was less than nothing to me at the time now i now i find that stuff pretty pretty enchanting stuff but the big one was that neil adams joker's five-way revenge oh, i think that's man. batman 51 something like that and yeah. oh man that's just i just i just it was just one of those things where you know you you just cannot eat almost you know come to dinner now nah, I, I gotta read this <laughs> Neil Adams comic you know <laughs> do, do you remember the first artist that um because I'm sure you were you were reading comics and then you just kind of practicing was there a, do you remember the first artist you were trying to like I don't know copy and do the same art style I mean like the first sketch you did off of a comic or or superhero I, I, you know, I guess that would be Neil Adams. I mean, another guy I think that was really, that was, I just blew me away was uh, Paul Galassi. Paul Galassi was working on master of Kung Fu in the seventies. Yes. Uh, and I just, you know, I, I just could not believe this. Well, what is going on here? This is just amazing. You know, I just, that, and when, and during the era when Paul Galassi was drawing master of Kung Fu, that went straight to the top of the pile, man. I mean, that was, that was the one that I just, uh, that was the one that I, he was my guy in the day, in the day. Um, also, and, and Michael Golden was in, was a guy when he was first came on the scene. I just, he was doing Batman and, uh, I, I discovered, I thought, you know, there was some, my memory of that late seventies period is that there was a lot of, I will call them generic Batman or it, there wasn't uh, some of the post Neil Adams, and this is not really fair, but post Neil Adams, there was, there was not a, uh, I don't remember a whole lot of really interesting Batman stuff, but, uh, or artists that is, uh, at least I didn't think so at the time, but I do remember liking, uh, of course, everybody liked the Marshall Rogers detective stories. That was pretty cool. But then there were the next guy after that would have been Michael Golden. It was one of those things. Well, wait a minute, who's this guy? What's this about? This is this is really cool, you know. Uh, but but curiously, I bought the first issue of the Micronauts that he did, and I recognized that this was that guy that did those Batman stories. But I had this thing. I, it's sort of it's sort of crazy. I had this thing about licensed comics or toy comics. I knew they were, I knew this was a toy. And so therefore it couldn't be real comics. He says with air quotes. (laughs) So I missed out on a lot. It's funny because now to this day on Facebook, I'm involved in several different groups, you know, stuff like ROM, stuff like the transformers, GI Joe, those things. I couldn't have cared less that, you know, I'm thinking why even do something like that, you know, but now there's not a day that goes by on these Facebook groups that somebody it's not posting about how much they love GI Joe and how influential Rom and, and, and all these, it's just, you know, that was, but that was my thinking back then. I was only interested in the, in the Marvel and the DC superhero stuff for whatever, you know, if I had to, I would hold my nose. And if there was nothing else, I would hold my nose and, 
get an issue of, you know, Wonder Woman or, or uh, Sergeant Rock or something like that if there was absolutely nothing else out there. But um, or, you know, one of the superheroes that I maybe didn't buy as regularly or something. But uh, the, the the first influences to answer your question the long way around would be Saudi Yosema <laughs> and Neil Adams and uh, Paul Golacy. There's others that I'm just blanking on right now. You know, all the classics like Gene Colan and I wasn't and, and Kirby, you know, the funny thing is, Everybody says Kirby. Everybody says Ditko. And at the time, as a kid, it's, you know, I just had these. It's not that I didn't like Kirby. It's not that I went and I didn't like Ditko. I didn't like Ditko as a kid, but it's only actually been in the last few years that I've come around to really start to reassess. Pardon me, Ditko. And I, uh, and, but, you know, you just take for granted Gene Colan and uh, Gil Kane and just all those absolute comics masters of that you know, with silver age and, and the bronze age and those guys who were around Kurt Swan, my gosh, you know, all that stuff. It was just there. And you just took it for granted because these guys were just so great, John, but you know, John Byrne, I don't, I guess I was there for all the John Byrne X-Men. I was, I was mm-hmm. right there for all that. So I don't know that I would consider him an influence, but you know, I was there for all that, uh, all that stuff historically. Yeah. But the guys that I, that I would consider big influences, at least conscious influences would be uh Sabusima and Neil Adams and uh you know probably Paul Galacy and Mike Golden are, are my big ones. And the thing about Mike Golden or uh the thing about Galacy was I think the biggest thing that I got and most people tell me that is is my biggest strength would be is the storytelling. How, you know the the how you lay out a page and how you tell yeah. a story within the page. You know the, which is which is really essential uh, that's that's really what you what you have to know. That's really what makes it comics versus versus pretty pictures, you know. Um, and so they tell me that I that that's where that's where my biggest biggest strength is. So for for those that aren't familiar with the process, um, and and maybe you could walk through it. Usually with a comic book, it's and especially something under Marvel, you've got the writer, um, the inker, the penciler, everything else. Uh, how does that all come together? Like, where does it start? Does it start with the story? Um, and then how is that, who's that passed on to? So if, if you were giving a class on like how to make a comic book one-on-one in the, in the DC or Marvel machine shop, how, how did that go down? The, you have an editor who handles an office and that office will handle uh, certain characters. So they're in like today, I think they would be like a Batman office. Okay. And, you know, currently Batman has, you know, four or five titles in that office. There's Batman and detective, but there's also Robin and there's also Batgirl and there's mm-hmm. also Batwoman and whatever else there is in that office, Nightwing, you know? So anyway, that, 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 that editor assigns writers to those particular titles. And then the writer and the, and the editor will discuss story. Sometimes a writer will come to, you know, or an editor will ask a writer, what ideas do you have? Sometimes from what I can tell, and I don't know that this is a great thing, but I think there's a lot of, this happens a lot with corporate comics, DC and Marvel comics, an editor will have an idea, or sometimes a corporation will have some, <laughs> some direction for it. And, and an editor is in charge of, you know, assigning people to influence that vision or an editor even will have a, this is kind of what I have in mind. I want to take Batman in this direction. And okay. so, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I would, I, I, I get the impression that a lot of people, you know, because they want to work on Batman, that may need, say that may not be what they had in mind, but to work on Batman, they'll try to follow this directive 
and go in this direction. But I, but I, but I, I will say generally, an editor will hire a writer with a a vision and a direction, uh, whether it be a story or or a, or a or a just kind of a template that they want to follow or a direction that they want to follow. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it starts with that editor and the writer. And then, 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 then of course you, then you find the artist. And I'm, and I'm sure for, from what I can tell, there's a lot of uh, working. Uh, a, a lot of people will writers and artists will, there's a lot of things, a lot of writers that will ask an artist, what is it that you want to draw? Okay. Just so that they, cause I guess the, 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 the feeling is that our, our if a writer, if rather, if an artist is drawing something that he really wants to draw, there's going to be that much level of, uh, of connection, that much level of passion that he's going to bring to the finished work. So, so starts with, I'll just, I'll, I'll simplify it. As you can tell, I take the long way around to answer. Most of <laughs> no, this is fan- your, your narratives are fantastic. I love how much detail you give to all of this, because I think for most people, when they open a comic book page, I, I would, and I'll, I'll be the first when I was growing up and I was reading the defenders, et cetera, in my head, I'm always thinking these are fantastic images. And then somebody came along and had to put a story to these images, but it was actually somebody who was drawing the panels and then, and I know this is a weird way of thinking it, but then the words would come after the panels. And I, I know that's not how it works today. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to me how, well, it's like movies, right? You have all these different artists, you have a director, um, cinematographer, all this stuff that come together for these unique visions. Comic books aren't that different. Um, and like you just said, I I mean, it kind of starts with an editor who might start with a premise or something that goes to a screenwriter, but yeah, just walking through that, I, I, I find that fascinating and how you describe it and, and a lot of the similarities on how to put like just entertainment together in general. Yeah, well, there's well, and of course, I should back up to say um, there are, there are some people who think there are two ways to work. There's the so-called Marvel method that it was popularized by Stanley and Jack Kirby, and you know some are very critical. There, I'm running into more and more people who are critical of Stanley and the Marvel method, which is to say, uh, okay, uh, I have just the vaguest of notions of ideas. Galactus comes to Earth, and then Jack Kirby takes it home. And draws, you know, and and basically lays out that story, and then Stan will come in later and add and add word balloons to this and that and dialogue and, mm-hmm. and captions to all that kind of thing. So there's there's that method of working, and there are those who argue that that really only works for Stanley and Jack Kirby. I mean, there's right you know, because the, those you know uh, they did some fantastic, formative, highly influential, uh, you know, work that way. And I, I guess he did that with, you know, not just Jack. He did that in most throughout the, the Marvel age with uh, Stanley and or whether with, uh, with, uh, oh my gosh, Gil Kane and, and, and all of those guys. But, um, but then there's, then there's the, the classic way is it starts with a script and that script has panel to create, you know, that starts with page one, uh, indicating whether it's a, a splash page and then it has the dialogue and what it's supposed to say. And then page two, and it breaks down how many panels per page and, you know, what, what, what are the actions in each panel? Um, so those are the two basic ways. Those, those are the two basic ways to work. And then most of most comics are, are put together with a, uh, what's the word, I guess a piecemeal way. So mm-hmm. the writer writes a script, sends that script to the artist, the artist breaks down, you know, he, he, he does the, he does the pages and then it, it's a little different now than I, than then now that the, the digital, uh, the digital uh, revolution has, has changed everything. But I think after, it's after the penciling 
is that comes the lettering, but, but, but this, it used to be that the penciling, then it's the lettering. Sometimes it was even the lettering first. Oh, okay. And then the, the uh, but, but I think generally it's, it was the penciling first, then it goes to the letterer. Then I think it goes to the, uh, to the colorist. The editor is, is, you know, trafficking these things and, and checking all of these things in the meantime. And, you know, of course there's deadlines. You've got to hit it by a certain right. time because every link in the chain has to have their, their piece done by a certain time to make that publishing mark. So. Okay. Well, let, let's talk about the Punisher. Uh, I, I find that to be one of the most, I don't, it's just an odd character that became popular. I know in the eighties, I mean, he, he started out as a Spider-Man villain and, and he is the probably perfect example of an anti-hero within the comic industry. But, but there was this, oh, there was this popularity that at a time where there was like four Punisher comic books coming out on a monthly basis. And then all of a sudden when Marvel was trying to get its, you know, movie stuff out the door, you know, Howard, the duck was not a, a big success. And then a couple of years later comes this Dolph Lundgren Punisher film. Um, you had worked on those issues What's your take on that character? I mean, you you've been a creator of the image of him within the books, but when you were working on it and working on the scripts with with Chuck and everything, like what was what was going on at that point with that storyline or that character? I think at that time, uh, the Punisher, uh, as written by Chuck, he was a guy. It was I think it was you know initially, and I think even. Uh, even at the time that I was working on the Punisher was kind of like those men's adventure paperback characters, you know? Yeah. And uh, this month he would get involved in, uh, with, with, uh, with um, uh, stopping a, a bank robbery or he, he wasn't like a typical Marvel superhero. It was obviously existing in the Marvel universe, but it was sort of um, street level stuff. And it was also maybe over here in a, in a, in a corner where it dealt with a little bit more, realistic stuff how and you know but occasionally he would still meet with you know or somehow you'd meet up with spider-man and uh once he once he started doing his own thing and when he's you know by the time he had what would you say three three or four titles by the way i remember thinking how can the punisher have three or four titles there's just not a as a premise i, I thought the same way there. yeah I, col- <laughs> I i collected the punisher in the punisher war zone at that time period um and then i think there was uh punisher war journal and Punisher yes. Armory, um, and it just those, boggled those my were, Yeah, those were more, what my memory is that they had the, started with the Punisher, then, yeah. then there was War Journal, and then, you know, when it started getting just blowing up, they created the War Zone, right. and uh, Punisher War Zone, that is. But in the meantime, they would still have, you know, those specials, like the after, the 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 summer special, yes. or the winter special. Or the uh, or the Christmas special, and then they would then on then beyond that they would have like the Punisher Armory where they would have these detailed, you know, uh, things about his weaponry and all that kind of stuff. So it's just amazing the heights the that the Punisher went to for a character that it, again I was just shaking my head. I I don't get it how you can how there can be. I mean Batman, Superman, uh, Spider Man. Even I can get where you can have enough. There, there's enough of the mythology. There's enough in the concept there to expand and, and, you know, uh, explore different, different stuff. But with the Punisher, it's just like, you know, <laughs> there's Punisher, there's microchip, you know, created obviously way later yeah. to be a, be a, be a, somebody he could talk to and to help him, help him do stuff. But uh, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was really curious on, on a lot of levels, but, you know, I, I, I kind of like that stuff. I, I tend to like the, 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 
down to earth Batman I've always preferred over Superman because he was a little bit more realistic, quote unquote, as realistic as you can be the guy who dress up like Dracula yeah. and fights crime. <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, and same way with the Punisher, you know, and he occupied this, this really curious space, the anti-hero space, and, uh, he used guns and he would kill people and, you know, <laughs> it's, it's an unusual, oh, it's an unusual character for that staple. Um, and I, I didn't know when you were, when you were working on that, cause I know, um, obviously there's a lot going on within that industry at that time, but it did, I, this is so I'm trying to articulate this, but that character, when you're working on it, it's an adventure comic. I, and especially in the nineties, it, it was an adventure comic more than anything. And yes. I, I feel like they, they got away from the vengeance stuff that, he, you know, which kind of kicked it off His family dies, et cetera. And now he's going on these adventures and he got, you know, really popular by, like you said, fighting off like down to earth baddies. Um, yes. But did, did they give you direction in terms of what they wanted you to draw or the style or what they were going for? Um, or, or even saying, Hey, we, we want a little bit of violence, but not over the top violence. Or, uh, I mean, what, what kind of work marching orders did they give you when you were working on it? I was not given any marching orders by editorial at all. I was just, I, you know, and I, I deferred and I trusted Chuck because I think Chuck's one of the best writers. Hands down. Uh, I really enjoyed yeah. Chuck's Chuck's material. You know, he's really versatile and, but he, you know, he can do, he can do everything and it has, you know, it was just amazing to me. I think even during that time, Chuck was writing Punisher and he was writing, um, uh, 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 the, oh gosh, what's the, uh, the, the Matt Groening show, dang it, who I'm just blanking on right now. The, the, the art, the animated show that's been on forever. Um, he oh, was the, doing that. So the he, Simpsons Simpsons, he was yeah. doing Simpsons comics, you know? And so he's really a lot more the people and most rightly so think of him mostly as an action guy, but he's really a versatile guy. But, but having said all that, the Punisher was a passion project of his. He really likes, right, likes and still likes the Punisher. I've heard him say recently where he still thinks about ideas for Punisher stories to this day. You know, he's translated that into some of his own creator own projects with his, uh, with his prose writing now. But, you know, that I, I followed Chuck's lead. I, he, I got a script from Chuck and I was just, I was just, you know, doing, I was just following it to the best of my ability to make sure that I could try to get everything uh, out of this, the, out of this script that, that Chuck, uh, that Chuck had written. And, um, I was totally, totally trying to follow Chuck, Chuck's hands. I mean, I didn't, I probably, if I were, if I were to do it over, I would have probably have really looked at a lot more, uh, guys like Russ Heath, guys like John Severin. Uh, but I think I, 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 I can't remember if this lines up exactly with, uh, with, with my, with my stuff coming out, but I can't remember when, but I, 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 I don't remember if these all were coming out at the same time, but I remember by the time, whatever else I liked, uh, cause I remember liking that Jim Lee stuff that he, that he did on the Punisher before yeah. the X-Men. I really liked that stuff. Of course it's Jim Lee. So he was, you know, he was, he was pretty good, but the, the stuff that really blew me away was the, uh, the Punisher Warzone stuff that Chuck did with John Romita Jr. I thought both of them just cut loose and took it to a, a whole nother level. And that was the, that was the stuff to follow. And again, I don't right off the top of my head. I don't recall whatever I did. It didn't match. It didn't match that. And I it, either, it was either in regret or it was, it was me trying to, uh, trying to chase, chase that stuff. But, uh, yeah, so I didn't get any direct draw like this, 
you know, look at this to do that. I mean, nobody, nobody did, nobody said anything like that to me, but I was trying to draw, you know, I was thinking of the Jim Lee Punisher at the time and, um, and, and, and just, you know, just your, your straight basic Hong Kong action film. That was, that was hitting, that was hitting big at the time. Too. I was going to ask you about that because I know you and I, um, we share love for Hong Kong films, um, and, and trade a lot of titles back and forth. So a lot of that stuff in the nineties, especially in the Punisher, you could see hints of some of the, the gun or the heroic bloodshed kind of coming through in the comics. And I was wondering how much of that kind of influenced in, in even the, the short period of run that you were doing it, um, you know, for you and Chuck, I mean, were, were you borrowing from that? I, that was an influence. Yeah. Chuck was the guy who interest, introduced me to John Woo, you know, and I, I specifically remember this as a sidebar, but I specifically remember uh, him sending me a copy of uh, a bootleg copy, I guess, of the killer back in the day. And I remember he had sent it to me. I got it before I went to work. I worked nights and I remember coming home and putting that thing in the video player, you know, pre, <laughs> pre, you know, pre DVD. And I just, I was just like, I like, what in the world am I watching this, this John Woo, the killer thing. And I almost called check at one o'clock in the morning or whatever it was to just like, my gosh, you know? So that was definitely an influence with that, uh, with the, you know, two the two handled, the two gun hand thing, you know, and, and all the, all the bullets and the, and the cascading, uh, shrapnel. And it's just, that was a huge influence for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. He's, I, I remember trading some movies with him at one point and I, I thought I had deep cuts of Hong Kong films. So this was the time when you could get it on laser disc and you'd copy it to VHS. And I remember giving you some, uh, and I would send something to Chuck and then he would send me like, uh, gosh, what was one that just blew me away? And he told me, he's like, there's no English subtitles to it, but you're going to love it. And it was double sword in Flagtown or something. And it was, oh, wow. it was like the Sergio Leone of, um, Wuxia film. I, it was fantastic. It totally blew me away, but I had always wondered. Um, and I kind of thought so just based on like the movies that you and I talk about and, and even the movies that, that Chuck and I shared back and forth at that time period. Um, I, I had always wondered like how much of that seeped into some of the, the Punisher stuff that, that went on at that time. Cause it, it's there. I, I think somebody oh, could draw a conclusion and go, yeah, it's that heroic bloodshed was coming through strong. Yeah. It was, I was not directed that way, but that was just the way I was going and whatever, whatever contribution, whatever, I don't know how, whatever influence, uh, that was the influence whatever ended up on the page. So, okay. <laughs> However it ended up on the page. Yeah. Well, I don't know when the last time you watched the 89, uh, Punisher film starring Dolph Lundgren. Do you, do you remember I, how long ago it was? I, or? You know, I think it's been 89 or 90 or whatever. <laughs> I remember at our mutual friend, Jim Alexander's, yes. we, we watched it. We had a movie night over there and we watched it. And, uh, you know, my memory of it was, it wasn't bad. It just, they were, we were frustrated by the, by the, um, you know, it's not like today they were trying to put as much of the superhero or the, or the Punisher iconography. They were trying to get away from the costume and all the, all the Punisher stuff. They kind of do that now, but yeah. especially then they were, they were trying to, you know, play down that whatever superhero uh, stuff, Marvel connections as possible. They were trying to make it more of a, of a, of a, of an action adventure vigilante thing which I guess Punisher is the emblematic emblem of that. But uh, I remember being a little frustrated. I don't remember it being bad. I just remember being a little frustrated by its lack of 
Marvelness, for lack of a better, like embracing term. the the Marvel nature yes, of it, that comic book nature. Embrace the Marvel stuff, yeah, uh, yeah, that that makes sense. I I'm curious, uh, in terms of just comic book inspired films, what are some of your your favorite ones that have kind of gone from page to screen? Which, which ones do you kind of think they they just nailed it? Um, well, you know, I I I'm I'm a fan of the MCU. Um, are you, I don't know if you're talking more obscure or you're just talking anything, man. I, I it's it's crazy now. Uh, you'll run across something, and it's just based on comic book. Uh, yeah. And and you've got C titles, B titles, A titles. I mean, the MCU is is now dipping into like Moon Knight and and stuff like yeah. that, which I, mean, I, I love. Uh, it's, it's just, a, you know, I, I don't think I have to tell you, it's just amazing from, I'm, you know, I'm one of those kids who kind of, you know, you didn't want to be seen reading, looking at the comics in the drugstore cause you would get made fun of. So I still have a little bit of some of that, you know, <laughs> over my shoulder, yeah. you know, but it's just, just astonishing to me how everywhere you go, there's these, there's these comic book themes and, and that, that are in, in the larger, larger culture. It's just absolutely absolutely amazing what was your question sorry no i just it was was there any was there any of those films that stuck out that you go hey i'm i really love the property like this this is one of my favorite comic book properties or you or you like that character and then you see either the television show or the film and you go man they, they nailed it i i really it's a good film or it's a good tv show and they embraced whatever the marvel the dc um the image you know what i'm just do you have a favorite well, out there you know, I, I the, the the right now I think the MCU leads the pack. I I'm probably going to get tarred and feathered for this. I liked the uh, the Dark Knight uh, uh, the the Christopher Nolan Dark mm-hmm. Knight films. I liked them, but I didn't love them because it was I don't know in my own personal development, for lack of a better word. I, I was just surprised. I would always thought that, you know, bat, the comics and the superheroes and those superhero movies, they should be serious. They should be taken seriously, blah, 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 quote unquote. But then, then comes the MCU and they have the right balance uh, of, uh, of, of, of seriousness and, and, and fun, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, you know, they, the, the Christopher Nolan films are just, you know, great, great. And they're so well done, but, the MCU movies are just so much more fun and that for whatever reason that, that appeals to me because I guess, I I guess the thing that I've discovered is as much as I love the superheroes, the more realistic you try to make them, (laughs) the more, more, uh, you know, the more goofy it, it becomes. And so, you know, trying to make Batman, you know, super real, I just don't know. I'm not sure if I, if I, if I see the point, I mean, I still like the movies, but I just, uh, you know, I guess right now the peak for me, as much as I loved the Avengers, the original, the first Avengers, Mm -hmm. my favorite so far is that captain America winter soldier that right now is, is still my favorite Um, that I, if I had to pick a film out there that I would have said, okay, if, if I were picking Todd's favorite film, that would have been the one I would have picked just based on, the stuff that you've worked on because of all the movies that are out there, that feels like a Todd Fox film. Yeah. I, I, you know, that's got uh, all the, all the requisite action and, and the superhero stuff. And it's, and it's uh, it's really good Captain America stuff too. It's not an Iron Man movie. It's not a, it's not a Thor movie. It's a Captain America movie, you know, and they, they really leaned into the Captain America aspect of it and the political espionage and and the adventure aspect of it. Seventies conspiracy stuff. Oh man. Yeah. Oh, it's just, uh, I loved it. Yeah. Do you, do you um, think then, the, then the, I was going to ask, do you think the, so 
and I hate to interrupt, but springboarding off of that film, do you think the the Punisher could work today in the MCU? I know they did the uh, series on Netflix, and he was in the the Daredevil series as well with um, John Bernthal. But do you do you think they could bring the Punisher into the MCU in a movie proper as a character? I think if they can bring the Gar- Guardians of the Galaxy and Ms. Marvel, uh, and I'm trying to think what other what's the most what would qualify? You know, Moon Knight's pretty obscure. Yeah. Uh, uh, if they can bring some of those if, some of those guys in, I mean, that's that's what's been the just absolute joy of these things that they're taking these. B and C and maybe even D level concepts and, and, you know, bring, making them, making them work. You may not work exactly how you remember them or even like them, but they're, but they're, but they're really, really working on them. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, I, I feel, I feel kind of bad there. It's, it's, it's a crazy time. This goes back to what I was saying before with, you know, if you love these, love this material, you just, there's so much out there now you can't watch it all, or at least I can't. You know? Oh, I'm so, with you hundred percent. I'm so far behind on, especially the TV shows. I barely catch up anymore. Oh, I can't. I mean, I I'm trying to think I I've got the first season. I watched the first season of daredevil. Uh, but I haven't gone to this. I haven't touched the second season yet. I watched some of Iron Fist. That was one of my favorite characters as a kid. And so, and, and so I was kind of curious about that show. And especially when I heard that it was uh, not as well received as some of the other Netflix shows in mm-hmm. that, in that cycle there. And uh, I can kind of see what they're talking about. It's not, it's not quite as, I didn't enjoy it as much as some of the other stuff that I've seen, but uh, you know, and, and I'm like, my gosh, all that DC CW network stuff. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I got the first season of Arrow, but I stalled out on that because, and, and so now it's like, I just, I, as a matter of fact, I've got the first season of Legends of Tomorrow on uh, on disc, but I haven't even cracked it. I thought, man, I can't keep up with this stuff. You know? <laughs> I'm um, same way, man. So it's just, it's just an amazing time. And I'm wondering if we're cycling, if it's starting to cycle out uh, of, in, in terms of interest. And I may be wrong. I don't know. I mean, it, but it seems like I, I thought I had, uh, as we're recording this, I thought I had remember hearing something that some of the CW network stuff is being, they're reducing some of that content. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. uh, so I, I don't know in some ways it, I, I wonder if historically this, this, this superhero phase of course, I mean, man, you know, the Marvel mil- movies have been around 10 years, but for some reason I was sort of relating it to that sixties spy craze yeah, where, you know, yeah. you had the James Bond films, which were the, the, a, that was the apex and uh, probably still is, but then, you know, there's other things that were around through that cycle. And I guess you could argue when the cycle started, when the cycle ended, but I'm wondering if we're, if we're maybe beginning to see a, a downturn in the cycle of superhero content or something. I don't know. I'm curious, but Th- that's I, a good so question. I guess maybe, maybe, maybe if, uh, <laughs> If we get to a point where they don't have as many shows, then I'll probably, probably in another 10 years, I'll start wanting to talk about all the superhero stuff that was, you know, everybody else was like, yeah, welcome to, uh, you know, in 2020, 2033, I'll start wanting to talk about it. And everybody will say, well, welcome to 2022, you know? Yeah. (laughs) I I do want to spend a few minutes talking about um, one of my favorite comics that you did simply because uh, I think you and I have this love for action adventure comics. And yes. you did a comic book um, a, a little while ago called Aim Geronimo in the Postmodern Pioneers. Correct. And yes. this, <laughs> it's funny you talk about the James Bond films. I, when I first picked this up and, and read it, 
it had this adventure aspect to it, but it was a combination of um, almost like a, a female James Bond combined with a little bit of the Avengers, especially when you kind of get further down in her adventures. Um, and it, and it just had this, uh, man from uncle feel too. I mean, it, it was pulling from all these things that I grew up watching that I kind of picked up on reruns, et cetera, but you managed to kind of capture an Indiana Jones slash James Bond slash man from, uncle. I mean, you were pulling from so many different genres for this kind of really fun adventure series. Can, can you talk about this and, and maybe where the creation came from? Yeah, thank you. It's all that and above, by the way. So, uh, yeah, all, all those influences and more. Yeah. James Geronimo started with uh, myself and a group of people uh, had gotten together through the Chuck Dixon message board. Chuck Dixon obviously is influential on on, on my creative life in a lot of ways. And um, we got together through the Chuck Dixon message board. And again, like I was referencing earlier, people who love comics and eventually you you know want to make your own comics. You know, this yeah. you, you want to do them your way. And so a bunch of bunch of us got together, uh, and I say us. They, there was others who were actually in, in, in more involved in the LLC, the actual official putting together of Shooting Star Comics. But Aim Geronimo was a was a combination of, of two things. My I was I had I was interested in westerns and the Southwest and Native Americans, and, and something of a modern Western feel. And then the the writer John Neal had already had he he had the concept of. Aim Geronimo. Basically, the original concept was an adventure team, uh, like a Challengers of the Unknown type of team, or no, more specifically, Doc Savage. Oh you yeah, know? and I, a lot of a lot of people don't. Uh, I'm finding that a lot of people, when you say Doc Savage, <laughs> a lot of people don't know exactly Doc's who Doc Savage is anymore. He's not the he's not the point of. Uh, He's not. He's not a reference point. A lot of people uh, remember. They don't, they don't anyway, know that. Johnny, Johnny Quest is another one. I don't think. I think's kind of fallen off the map too. And and I see elements start, of that in there. To be starting to, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but that's that's the initial combination. Is that John wanted to put together a, a? He's from Texas, and he wanted to put together a Doc Savage type of team that was based in Texas, uh, or at least in the Southwest, and so. Uh, he had he had the initial idea for Aim Geronimo, and I think he had started it with another artist. But he, somebody, a mutual friend of ours through the through the Dixonverse message board, said, "Well, you know, this sounds like this would be good for my friend Todd Fox." And so we got together and we started, you know, we started working, working on this. And I like to think I brought something. I think I changed the look and I, you know, maybe changed some of the characters uh, because of my influences and whatever it is that I bring to it. And so we, let's see, Aim Geronimo was in the first, I think, I can't remember. I don't have them right in front of me, but the Shooting Star Comics Anthology. Because it was the flagship title of the, of the Shooting Star Comics. They, they published some other things. Uh, but it, I think there was like seven issues of the Shooting Star anthology, and AIM was in six of those. Yeah, they're, they're collected- a little two or three page shorts, right? Pretty much because I uh, they were they were eight page shorts, eight page shorts. Yeah, that's right. Page. Yeah, they they weren't very long, but I just remember the first one. I mean, they 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 just started out as an adventure because it was just AIM. Um, I I think the second or third issue it was a weather machine one, um, which was yes, a lot of fun. Right. Had that's the one that kind of reminded me of an Indiana Jones kind of feel to it, but. Yeah. Yeah. Then we did. And shoot, through Shooting Star, we published uh, 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 an original 20 page story called Trickster. 
And then after Trickster came out, we collected all of the eight page stories and Trickster into a hundred page with some other material. And we, we, we published, a uh, we, we put together a graphic novel by that time shooting star had folded. So John and I, through our, uh, Geronimo press imprint, we put together a collection called trap dancing and we collected all the aim material up to the, up to that point. And that stuff is still available. And I still am selling copies of that through, uh, through Indie planet. I mean, I sell them when I make appearances, uh, but I also, you can get that online at indieplanet.com. So, yeah. I, and I encourage everybody it, to check it out. It is a lot of fun. It's, it's some fantastic drawings, but if you, if you like adventure comics in, and you you want to see these influences. I, the way I describe it is, I, I like the Southwest feel to it. But I I I remember reading that and going, this feels like Indiana Jones met James Bond met um, just a, a you know a team Johnny Quest almost like, and they're and they're going out and um, saving the world more or less. It was it's a lot of fun. A lot of people compare AIM to uh, Laura Croft, which is not necessarily accurate, but, you know, she's a female, uh, she's the closest thing that most people can connect, pardon me, connect her to, which is a female adventurer. You know, she gets involved in adventures, but, you know, she's, AIM Geronimo is a, you know, a next generation intellect, uh, super scientist. I I, kind of call her like Reed Richards without superpowers, really. And so he's, and so she's got a team of experts like Doc Savage had and, you know, her and, uh, and so, and each of them have their own individual, you know, stories. It's, I mean, that's, that's the thing I think that I really appreciate about it is that, you know, each character really could do you could do stories on each individual character, but they're bringing them together. It makes it all, all the more interesting, you know? And so she goes around the world and gets involved in adventures and, and, you know, threats and, and, and discovers, you know, hidden civilizations and all that classic adventure, adventure material. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I get fun. it's, it's, it's uh, somebody asked us one time and I said, you know, it's, she's kind of been designed to specifications of all the stuff that we like, you know, all that classic, uh, all that classic adventure, adventure material, you know? Yeah. When, when I, when I played the, uh, uncharted video games, and then I saw, you know, the film and stuff like that. I, I thought if they ever do a Nathan Drake comic book, it needs to be Nathan Drake and aim Geronimo and, and you should be drawing that stuff. Cause I, I think it'd be nice. perfect for it, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, every now and then I, I don't guess a person drawing comics now does not think of this, but I, I, I do think that aim Geronimo has huge potential in other media, especially now, uh, that she could be great as a female led adventure, uh, franchise. Absolutely, man. You know, she's, uh, she's super smart. She's the smartest in any room. And she's also, you know, uh, She's also uh, an expert gun, you know, she's a gunfighter and she's a, you know, she gets involved in spy-ish international adventures too, you know, just by the nature of her, her discoveries. And there's super science and there's, uh, there's action and then there is adventure and there's, and there's uh, mystery as well. So it's, like I say, it's, she's been created to, 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 to handle all of the, all of the material that we like to do. So it's awesome. Well, Todd, I know you're super busy. I thank you so much for just taking a few minutes out of your very busy schedule. Cause I know you got the broadcasting gig. I hope you're drawing more aim. That's yes, you are. Yes. Okay, good. Good. Yeah, it's, uh, we're, we're doing, I'm doing, working on an aim right now. It's uh, not ready to be announced yet, but there is, there is new aim material coming. So awesome. Thank, thank you for asking. 
No, no, no. I, I, I can't wait to see it. But um, I encourage everybody, go check out Aim Geronimo. Go back for the older issues of Punisher and Punisher Warzone. Just seek out Todd Fox, especially Chuck Dixon um, as a writing. But uh, you will see the Hong Kong influence, especially in the early 90s coming out of that stuff. It's so much fun. Um, but again, oh, yeah. I, 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 I love the work that you're putting out. Thank you for doing it. Um, it's as a comic book fan, you're, you're one of the best, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you, man. It's good to, good to see you. Good to talk to you and uh, my best to the family. Yeah, you good, too. Good luck with the podcast. This is uh, like I was telling you before, this is a lot of podcasts do not have a, they just want guys to get together and talk. And you guys have a, actually a really interesting angle from which to approach, you know, the conversation. I think that's, that's really interesting. So, well, Hey, it gives us an excuse to reconnect with everybody. So, um, I was looking for an excuse to sit down and talk with you a little bit. Cause, uh, we, we haven't talked to comics and Hong Kong films for a while. So I'm like, Hey, let's, let's <laughs> up time. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. I appreciate you having me, man. So. All right. Okay, that that might not have been a little conversation. So here's the problem with Todd and I. So we can talk for hours. I mean, hours, and we do. And we always talk, we start with comics, we start with, well, actually, we start with family. Like, what you don't hear is him and I just trading stories about our kids and, and the family. And then we get into comics. And then um, if time allotted, we would have spent two hours on just Hong Kong and Asian films uh, because he's he's as big a fan as, as you and I are, Brad. But um, a, a big thank you to Todd because he's super busy. Um, he's got his broadcasting job. He's, he's still drawing and he um, still works on comics. You can catch him at conventions too and you can buy his work. So he's done, he's got some Wolverine sketches cause he's worked on that character as well. Mm-hmm. Um, alias. So, and, and we talk about this too, but, uh, his work on alias is being reprinted right now. And you can see that in the comic shops, but I seriously search out anything with Todd Fox and I guarantee you're going to like it. He's one of my favorite artists. Um, and you know, he's, he's one of the reasons why I love the Punisher in the nineties. I mean, him and, and the stuff that Chuck Dixon did, I think it's fantastic. I've always been a big Chuck Dixon fan. Um, you know, his, his work for DC, even his GI Joe stuff. I mean, he worked on GI Joe. I mean, there you go. That that's the pinnacle, right? But, um, yeah, I, I hope everybody enjoyed that. We, we try to reach out to, to the folks that we know. And, and like I said, Todd and I go back a little bit, but, uh, just, just wanted to share that interview. Very cool, man. Yeah, that was awesome. So Brad, uh, what are we doing next week? It'll be the last comic book film, right? Well, not, yeah. Not really. We're, I actually, we're doing some more, but for June, right? For June, yeah. 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 So we are doing, oh boy, the Josh Trank directed Fantastic Four from 2015. Oh my um, goodness. It was also styled as Fan Forestick. Fan Forestick? Well, it, they have F A N T four S T I C. Um, anyway. Um, yeah, that movie is, uh, something else. And we have a lot of people that wanted to be on this episode. So we will have a few guests for next week. Okay. So the question I have for you real quick, how big of a fantastic four fan are you? Not at all. Really? I think the fantastic four are pretty boring. Oh boy. Yeah. We got a problem. Cause I love the fantastic four. Yes. Yeah, uh, I still collect the Fantastic Four so, comics. And, and here, 
And I was thinking about this today because I knew you were going to ask me this, and I know you're a big Fantastic Four guy. Is something about these characters that get their powers through some sort of cosmic disaster? Yeah. Outside of like Phoenix, right? So Fantastic Four, the Incredible Hulk, like just those aren't characters that I really like. So I don't Uh, know. We'll we'll spend some time on it next week. So I'll, I'll say this. I'll give you a little preview. I love the Fantastic Four, but what I love the Fantastic Four, the reason why I love it so much is the Fantastic Four universe. Yeah, I, now, I, think I will say, I think Doctor Doom is one of the best villains. He is period. probably my favorite villain. Uh, I, I I really love Victor Von Doom, but it really, when when you kind of get into the to the Fantastic Four universe, that's always been its strength is not just the fantastic four, but everything that kind of comes with that comic series and everything that surrounds it. Um, Galactus and and all this stuff, right? Silver surfer. So um, we'll talk in great lengths. The other question I have for you is, are you going to watch the very first fantastic four movie? The one that didn't come out, the Roger Corman one, the one that was only made not to be released, but actually to retain the rights to the fantastic four. No, I, I do have one. Uh, I do have a Blu-ray that I bought at a convention once, so I, I can watch that one. Um, I am definitely watching. I might. Yeah. Now, I re- I recently watched the Doomed um, documentary. Yes. And that is a very cool documentary about how, basically, how that whole thing went down. But, um, yeah, I, I will probably go back and watch the other two if I have time. Silver Surfer is, oh, boy. I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can do Rise of the Silver Surfer. I will probably watch them all again. Yeah, um, I know you will. <laughs> so, uh, but I'm definitely watching the right. Well, what's funny is I I already watched the other two, the 20th Century Fox ones. I I watched those like two months ago. I I would not mind going back and revisiting them again because I like Fantastic Four. But I'm definitely I haven't seen the Roger Corman one in a good long while, and I think you and I own the same Blu-ray. Yeah, I think we we might have even gotten it at the same time. I think we got it at the same time because we got it from the same person. Yeah. Um, who actually got me a copy of the original Fantastic Four theatrical poster. So oh, I, I have that downstairs too. But yeah, so that yeah, I've got a lot of Fantastic They must like you more than me because I didn't get it. <laughs> uh, did you did you not pick up the doomed book as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I just I inquired about the poster and Lo and behold, it's like, oh yeah, we have some over here. So I, I bought that too, but he had to ship that to me. So, but yeah, um, we're, I'm, we're, we definitely got to watch that one too and talk about it. Cause I think that's a, fa- we won't go into all the details. We're not going to do the like uh cliff notes version of doomed. If, if you want to know all about the original fantastic four movie and that mythos behind it and how it got made, why it got made, go watch the documentary. I think it would be fun to watch that version versus the uh, the Josh Trank version because they're in two completely <laughs> different spaces, right? Yeah, and, and I, I wanted to hint, get back on this real quick. So you, we put out a poll earlier today on who is the best Frank Castle, winning currently, Ray Stevenson. Really? Not what I would have shown. Not what I would have guessed, but very cool. Uh, how close is Dolph Lundgren? Uh, he is actually in second place. Him and Berthal are basically neck and neck, and Thomas Jane is the last. So, yeah. I'm okay yeah. with that. I'm okay yeah. with that. Yeah. 
as long works. as Thomas Jane is the last, I, I'm good with any order. Because uh, yeah, yeah, that that's good. All right. So, how do people share their thoughts on the Punisher? Hey, tell us which Punisher movie is your favorite. Maybe you know, come come here and defend the Thomas Jane one for us if you're in love with that. I think it's okay. It doesn't reach the heights of the other two, but you know, Brad, if if somebody wants to tell us why that Thomas Jane Punisher version is the pest version. How do they, how do they get hold of us? Yeah, that's not at gmail.com. Uh, you can go to our website, not hit the contact us button. You can also hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Awesome. Um, and we got a bunch of suggestions for, um, Halloween films, um, uh, for October sequels. Yes. So we ask and we got a bunch. So thank you for, uh, reaching out to us on that. Um, I think we need one more. So we're still, we're still looking, but yeah. And I, I gotta say all the suggestions that came through, um, I, I didn't even think about, and we, we did pick from that list. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind sure. of excited for October. Now it's, it's shaping up to be a, a pretty good spooktober. Yeah, we will, we will see. So, uh, yeah, man. Uh, what else we got going on? Anything exciting besides the fact that, you know, we're still going strong at 106, 106 episodes in the third season. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, the other thing we might do, um, which we've got to work out the details is I think we might try something different. Um, and maybe at mid year, you and I have to get together on this. And this is the first time I'm telling you about it. <laughs> okay. This is, is uh, I, I, we had somebody, um, a, a listener send a, an email in asking if we were going to talk about Michelle Yeoh's film this year. Uh, what was it? Everything everywhere. Yeah. I, I can't remember the full titles. It's it, everything everywhere all at once or something of that nature. Uh, and I said, no, it, it's not a bomb. It's a 24's highest grossing film. It's making a lot of money and critically it's just through the roof. So, uh, then the question came up of, are you guys going to talk about like your films, your favorite movies that you've seen so far in 2022? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I think Brad, just based on that request and that exchange, cause I think somebody really thinks Michelle Yeoh's film is going to be in a list if we put together and talk about our top movies we've seen so far. And it could be. Yeah. I'm a fan of that movie. Um, but I think it would be interesting maybe after June wraps up and we get into July, maybe take a look back at the movies from 2022, maybe list our top three or four and do a special episode or something like that. Yeah, we do that. I've, okay. I've seen – I'm. One of the things that this podcast has helped me do in with every hobby and everything, you kind of ebb and flow, but really getting back into watching movies pretty much day. I will say like I finish a movie every day, but I'm watching something movie related, getting through stuff every day, pretty much every day. Um, Now that I beat Elden Ring, I can, I can move on and watch even more. So. (laughs) Awesome. But I, yeah. And I, I want to, I want to thank our, our listener for that suggestion. Cause, um, I, I love the fact that people are actually looking for films for us to talk about. And, uh, I think it would be good to maybe, we, we always at the end of the year, take a look back at the movies that bombed and, um, pick some, I think you've, you've got two, I'm waiting till we get closer. Cause I got a feeling there's some more bombs out there 
that we can. I pick had to from. pick these two. I had to pick. These I know two, and the two you picked. I'm so excited to talk about. Um, and I went out and bought them. Uh, so I, I'm super excited about it. But I think it would be fun to go back and um, maybe do a look back at the first half of 2022 and maybe come up with a just a random number and say, well, we'll talk about our top whatever and maybe have a few guests on that we like and and see what their picks would be as well. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot of friends who watch a lot of movies, so yeah. We do, and it's always fun when we get them together. So we'll we'll work on that. And if if people are interested in it, let us know. We we have one person who's definitely interested in it. <laughs> uh what else? I bet they can take a guess who that is. Yeah. Um I think you could too. Uh what else? That it? Hey, that's it, man. Cool. Well, hey, uh, if you I'm presuming a, you did a great job on the interview again, I wasn't there. So would the listeners listen, hear it? I'll, that'll be the first time I hear it too. So good yeah, job, let's, and, and please search out Todd Fox's stuff. You, you've got to, you've got to go see, um, what he's contributed to, to the comic book universe. It's good, good stuff, man. Uh, other than that, you know, if you get a chance, give us some feedback. If you happen to listen to iTunes or any place that, happens to have a review section, you know, leave us a little review, tell the world what you think of us and, um, you know, hopefully share the love about not a bomb. Other than that, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon or evening. I thank you so much for stopping by. I know this is a little bit of a longer episode because we threw that interview in, but I, I really want to make sure that, um, I have the benefit of knowing such an amazing person like Todd Fox. And I just want to share that with everybody. It just happened to coincide the fact that he worked on one of my favorite comic book characters, too. But, um, yeah, uh, please come back next week. We're going to have a lot of fun talking about the Fantastic Four. And we get to hear why Brad doesn't um, like fun things. I don't know. (laughs) Don't lose your head. I can't believe I fell down and broke my ankle. That couldn't be in the punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, no Christopher Lambert next week. Hopefully. (laughs) 